everybody, this is Dave. I am the game master of the Rad Rules uh, Fallout Tabletop RPG podcast. Uh, joining me today is uh, my dear friend, player, and sometimes GM of Rad Rules, Jared Bailey. How you doing, buddy? Not bad. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to have you here. Uh, today, we wanted to kind of give you a little bit of a rules cast. This is going to be kind of casual. We're going to be doing some uh, talking about... The rules, uh, giving you kind of a setup of uh, how to play a Fallout TTRPG. Um, this is the only Fallout TTRPG, unless you homebrew something. Uh, but this is uh, by Modifius. Uh, this is kind of going over their book, their rules, some of our own thoughts on the rules, own thoughts on equipment, enemies, tips and tricks, that kind of stuff. Um, it's not a, a bulleted necessarily format, but it will be a great conversation and may give you some ideas in the future about running your own game and doing your own thing. Uh, I'm going to hand the first kind of kind of basic question off to off to you, Jared. So what cool. exactly is a TTRPG? Oh, wow. We're going to start strong here. So yeah. a TTRPG is an abbreviation for tabletop role-playing game. So role-playing game is any type of game in which you play the role of a character. Uh, it could be a self-insert. It could be something fantastic. It could be something low and pitiful and anything in between. Uh, usually tabletop RPGs have some type of rule system that uh, help you decide whether your actions succeed or fail. And then the story progresses um, based off of those results. Um, for a, a lot of people, when they think tabletop RPGs, they think about like Dungeons and Dragons and most recently like 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons. And those, those use dice and a character sheet to kind of help with your uh, decision making, whether or not the, the action you took succeeded or failed or just how well you did or just how poorly you did. Um, some games don't use dice. Some games may use uh, cards. They may use spinners. They may just require some interpretation of the narrative and what makes the most sense. But uh, tabletop RPGs really spanned a very large array of rule sets and stories and environments, settings. It's it's pretty broad. I think I think that's a great overview of it. Uh, how did you get started in TTRPGs? So probably my introduction to role-playing games in general would have been video games. So, you know, the Final Fantasy series, we just talked about that a little bit a while ago. The Fantasy Star series that was on, like, Sega Genesis. Yeah, Fantasy uh, Star 4, and that's where it's at. Yeah, uh, Chrono Trigger, you know, all the, the Square and Square Enix, all those, like, RPGs that came. That's sort of what gave me that inspiration, just for these fantastic stories. I've got characters with different statistics that are better at some things and worse at other things. And then... You know, uh, Fallout or the Elder Scrolls games. So I think Morrowind was the first one I picked up when I had my Xbox. So, you know, that was a really deep dive into sort of like a stats heavy game. And uh, Fallout 3 uh, was another one that I picked up for my 360. And then about 10 years ago, yeah, it was about 10 years ago, I was introduced to Pathfinder. So our local area has a really good Pathfinder Society Lodge, and I was introduced to Pathfinder uh, through their organized play campaign. 
And from there, I found a, a, a game that I could drop in one day a week on a Sunday, and it didn't have to be the same people every single time. I could just bring my character, and I could play, and I could do this on a weekly basis, and that sort of transitioned me into being comfortable enough to try to run the game once I'd learned the rules a bit better. And then once I got comfortable with that game system, I started branching out to other game systems, and now I've got a full bookshelf of different RPGs and stuff that I've read and learned from and cherry pick from when I want to run stuff. And, you know, it, it's that's kind of been my background. I, I started very small, uh, tangentially related to tabletop RPGs, then I expanded, got mastery into one system and then expanded out. And a lot of those lessons that I learned from Pathfinder and Pathfinder Society translate very well to other games just like the Fallout 2D20 system. And that's my rough background. Yeah, I, I think I think that that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned about having the books. It's like once you get invested in this hobby, you tend to just collect books. Um, that's just like a part, of, a part of the repertoire a little bit, is you just have either too many PDFs or books uh, in some regard. Uh, kind of my, my start with it was, was like you, was, was with video games. Um, Think, I think I, I was a big Dragon Quest fan uh, for a while um, and then got started with uh, some more 3D stuff. I started with with uh, with Night's Seal Republic and Night's Seal mm, Republic 2. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, who makes these games? And so it was BioWare was the first one in Obsidian. I was like, well, let me play some of their other stuff. And that's where I got introduced to uh, Neverwinter and Neverwinter 2. Um, which are, I, I think, Neverwinter 2. I want to go back and play sometime because that's a, just a really good uh, D&D game. Um, from there, I really played a bunch of video games. Uh, Elder Scrolls, Fallout, uh, Dragon Age uh, is probably a good in-between between between the original stuff and now uh, Final Fantasy. And then a few years ago, um, I had a, a friend group that um, was like, we should play D&D. It's like, we should we should do this and just figure it out we know absolutely nothing about them and uh ended up dming a few sessions and then i was like well you know that's pretty fun i like doing that so we kept on doing that and and kept on uh it's a different dm this time because my time is now spent um dming a or gming a different podcast (laughs) rather than rather than trying to build two worlds at once i'm now i'm now just building one world which is which is nice um but i decided i was like you know there's something about fallout um which Fallout is a series that a post-apocalyptic RPG uh, that came out, I think, in the in the late '80s, early '90s. Um, on, it was a, a computer RPG, so it was like top-down. You were looking tactically, you were filling out skills. Uh, kind of in the in the late 2000s, it came out as a 3D game where it was like a first-person shooter. Uh, still had a lot of that RPG mechanics. Uh, that's what kind of made it big. Uh, Fallout 3, uh, Fallout New Vegas, and Fallout 4. I think the the trio of those games made it what it is. Um, I think that that between those four, there's probably a favorite uh, for people uh, that that you know they will ride or die by. Um, I got started doing a, a podcast based on their multiplayer game, Fallout seventy six, which is set in West Virginia, which is where we're both from. And uh, I thought, you know what, this is this is fun. I wonder if there's like a, a tabletop RPG uh, that is like Fallout. And so I went through. Read some Monster of the Week, read some uh, Apocalypse, uh, 
some of those Powered by the Apocalypse games, um, kind of got inspired by that, and then found that Modifius had just released a uh, Fallout RPG with their own um, unique 2D20 system. Uh, And decided, you know, it's like, you know, let's play a game that's going to be different from most, like, regular tabletop games. Our games are a little bit different from, like, when you actually sit down to play. Uh, Combat's a little faster. Uh, We're really, like, focused on dialogue and having discussions. Like, there's a lot less, I think, of that chuff you get when you hang out with friends and, 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 you know, have a drink and a snack and you're just like all together. Like we record in two to three hour sessions. Uh, you know, most of my days where I am, you know, sit down and I play D and D with a group. It's like, Hey, come over for lunch. And we're all just hanging out pretty much until dinner time. And then we all go home. Um, but this game, uh, we're going to kind of go through and kind of teach you how uh, some of the, just some of the basics really, and talk about uh, our experience with that. Um, so let's just like get it off and get it started. Uh, let's talk about skill tests. Um, I'm going to run through essentially the steps, and then we're going to discuss a little bit about you know some of the pros and cons of the system, um, pretty much for everything that we do. Uh, so rolling the dice in every Fallout game, uh, you always have your special, which is strength, perception, endurance, um, charisma. charisma, intelligence, agility, luck. See, I I, o- I only did a little stutter there. It was just a little stutter. And I didn't even look at anything. So everyone be very impressed. And then there's a number of skills. Uh, in the original Fallout 3, New Vegas, and the, the older games, you had specific skills like small guns, melee weapons, big guns, medicine, that kind of stuff. All of those are in the Fallout 2D20. Fallout 4 didn't necessarily have those because it was a very uh, perk-based system. And so they had a huge chart with a bunch of different perks. Um, it was a little bit of a different RPG feel for that one. Um, so what you start with is you choose an attribute and a skill. So that could be strength and melee weapons based on what's happening. So like, oh, you know, Pep is trying to break down a barrier with a giant hammer. It's like, okay, in order to do that, roll a strength because he's using his strength ability and melee weapons because he's using a hammer. Uh, If he was using his fist, you could roll unarmed. If he was trying to figure out the best way to like, like break through a door without offending someone, maybe that's charisma plus melee weapons. Um, from that, you set a difficulty. Uh, so let's say that the door is wooden. That's probably a difficulty zero. If you Have you ever taken a hammer to wood, like an old wooden door and fall out? That's probably pretty easy to break down as opposed to like a steel or, um, you know, a, a blast door of some sort for a bunker. Those difficulty ranges uh, from one to five. Uh, then you roll your dice pool. And so every time you roll in a fall 2d20, unless you're doing an assist, you roll two dice. And you can add dice to that pool based on your AP, which we'll get to. Um, you look and see if you got a success. So what is a success when you're rolling those two skills? So let's say that Pep has a strength of seven and his melee weapons is four. So add those two together. What do you get? You get 11. So it's kind of opposite rules than like a, a D&D. Oftentimes you hear, oh, that's a, that's a nat 20. That's a crit. This is opposite. We're looking to score low. This is a golf game. This isn't no... No basketball, shoot him up. I'm LeBron James. This is, we are like Phil Mickelson out here, really striking. How many golf jokes can I make? I can make a bunch, I'm sure. Um, 
So you're looking to score below that 11. So if they hits an 11, that's a success, and you count that. And so based on the difficulty, if it's a difficulty 2, that means we need two successes. Um, if it's a difficulty 0, that means that it doesn't... You need to have a success, but anything over that success gives you a point of AP. So if you succeed three times on a difficulty 0 test, you're going to get three AP to your pool. Um, and once you have that result, you're able to um, essentially tell what happens in that story. So I know that you've had some other experience with a 2D20 system, uh, Jared, for these for these skill tests. What's been your experience like for that? It works. So uh, I've looked at a lot of tabletop RPGs, and you know, well, let, I'm going to contrast this with D and D Fifth Ed because a lot of people who think about RPGs they think about Fifth Ed that it's a lot of people have experience with it, which is why I'm comparing to. Yep. So with 5th Ed, Pathfinder, Starfinder, all these games, usually you're rolling a d20 plus a static bonus and trying to hit a target number based off of the challenge. So you've got a monster with an armor class of 15. You want to roll your d20 and add your you know combat proficiency, and you want to hit 15 or better. So the difficulty is set by the monster, the task. The alternative is that the target number is based off of your particular skill. So in this particular case, the target number, we talked about, you know, Pep wanting to, you know, with a strength of seven and a melee of four, his target number is 11. So you want to roll, you know, less than that number because you want your skills to be big, so you want your your dice roll to be small. And there are other games that do this in different ways, too. So Fallout 2D20 is based off of the number of successes you roll. Uh, a lot of the uh, free league games like Tales from Loot, Things from the Flood, Alien, Mutant Year Zero, Coriolis, the list goes on and on. You roll a dice pool, and you try to hit a target number X number of times. And that's a lot what's happening here. The target number is based off of your skills, and you want to hit that as many times as possible when you roll your dice. So you it, it's a anytime somebody picks up on these D20s, that's the first lesson they have to learn with the Modifia systems. And this is with Conan, with Star Trek, with Fallout. You want to roll low. You gotta do a little math to figure out what your number is, but you always know what the target number is. So if you're fighting that beholder, you don't know what the AC is. You don't know what the reflex save is. You don't know what the wisdom save is, anything like that. But, you know, uh, the episode that just came out recently, the party's fighting a Yagwai. And it doesn't matter if you're fighting a, um, a survivor, a ghoul, a Yagwai, anything. Your target number always stays the same. So it gives the player a little bit of agency to figure out just how much they want to invest in trying to kill this thing because they know exactly how good they are. I've been at tables where, you know, we've been fighting like a, a very difficult monster and the players have to roll like 19 or better to hit. And it's a little bit frustrating because it feels like they can't really do anything to t sort of turn the tide of the battle. In Fallout, in this case, you know exactly what number you're trying to hit. You've got resources to try to hit that number even more frequently. And there are other things that you can do to try to improve your situation to make it a little bit easier for you to get those successes as well. So I like it because it give, it increases player agency. The player knows what they're getting into. They know the difficulty of what they're getting into. They have an idea of what the consequences are, even if they fail. 
So I I do like that in systems. And uh, a lot of the players I've talked to that play games like this really like that agency as well. Uh, it, it As a GM, it makes you look a bit less uh, like a jerk when bad things happen because you told them up front was what was going to happen and they still chose to roll, roll dice. So. Right. The, the, the interesting thing, I think a great thing is like intimidation checks. Like oftentimes we don't like if you're playing D and D five E and you do an intimidation check, like you have to spec into that. Like you have to put, it's like, okay, I know I'm going to intimidate and fall at 2d 20 Let's say that, you know, we have a character like Clark who is um, very versatile in uh, his sword. Uh, we, have, we have a character that's very big into his sword. And so if he's threatening somebody with his sword and saying, like, hey, watch out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you if you don't stop talking, like, he's not going to roll an intimidation check. He's going to roll probably a charisma plus melee weapons. But let's say that he only has an energy pistol and he doesn't have very many skills into that, he has to roll his charisma plus energy weapon. So it's, it's like dependent upon like what you're skilled at. If you're like playing to your playing to your part, playing to your skills, I think that you can be really, uh, you can get a lot of success from that um, and, and kind of build a character that's not necessarily like, you know, pigeonholed into something. Like you can figure out a way to play to your strengths no matter you know, whether the situation is talking to someone or, um, you know, trying to investigate some information, trying to be stealthy, like everybody has their skill. Like, so we had a, a giant bruiser in the party that I, when they were trying to break into a museum to steal something, he was like, you know what, my character, just of how he's built, how he is like acting, um, is not very stealthy. So I'm going to stand outside and I'm going to make as big of a distraction as I can. Like just from looking at his skill set of what he could do, looking at his special, looking at his skills, um, he was was able to make that adjustment and say, okay, this is what I can probably do. And from a like from a GM perspective, saying, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to add a lot of like sneak. He's going to be kind of like tricking people. There's going to be a lot of charisma involved uh, if he's intimidating people. If he's using his power armor or something like. He's going to be using that strength skill um, with a speech skill. Um, so there's a there's a lot of ways that I think you can spin it to play it in favor of the players, which I do a lot of the time. Uh, and there's a lot of ways where if they are in a scenario and you want them to you want them to fail. Uh, sometimes I really want the I really want the players to fail at something because like failure builds the story as well. You can be like, hey, you know what? You're trying to jump over quicksand while holding a sword and you just don't know you don't know what's going on. Um, you can roll something that's that's out of their skill range and say, okay, try that. But do you and, still want to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you still want to <laughs> do it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm just looking at the skills right here, and just the mix and match is absolutely wonderful. I'm taking a look at um Repair, for example. Repair is typically attached to intelligence. But if you have to remove like a rusted nut with a wrench, you could use strength instead. If you're mm. trying to assess what repairs an item might need, you might be able to use your perception. If it's a 12-hour a job, you might be able to use endurance. You could use charisma if you're speaking with someone about 
those impair, repairs. Intelligence to actually use repairs. Agility if you need to get over to something broken very quickly before something more catastrophic happens. Or luck just because like we don't know if it'll work or not. There's all f- seven of your special that you could potentially use with that one skill depending on the situation. So, you know, depending on how it's pitched, you can adapt these. So it's not just a one size fits all. Oh, if if you want to be good at repairs, it has to be intelligence. That generally that is the case, but you know, it's it doesn't make sense that you know, there there's some repairs that require some brute force. <laughs> yeah. In the the way that the game the way that the game is set up in general, like sometimes you may be really good at something as well and like get a just fail your skill test because that's just the way you rolled all 19s and that's just yeah. the way oh i'm really good at this thing oh that's what it is um there's also a part a point in the book where they talk about success at a cost oftentimes when i know that something is going to like move the group forward um i'm, I'm going to give them a success at a cost so by the time this episode releases uh the group has probably stuck their hands into a uh quicksand um uh, vestibule uh, that had a bunch of monsters in there, and I needed them to reach their hand into there so that they could get themselves out of the predicament where they like, like essentially killed a guy, let him sink in quicksand, and oh, he had probably the most important MacGuffin of every episode so far. Yeah. Um, so I needed them to, I needed them to reach in there and do that, and so they they failed a, a skill check, and so I was like, okay, well, if they fail it, then they're going to be able to do it because that's just like. It, it's hard to say. It's hard to say no on some of those important things, but the cost is that they're going to get damage, and it's going to be um, uh, like a very particular kind of damage. There's going to be like uh, implications to that in the story. Um, the so that that's kind of like success at a cost. Uh, like other things that could happen are um, complications, which are uh, if you roll a twenty, generally the the GM is supposed to add a complication to that. So it's like. Oh, you fired your uh, laser gun really well, but it broke in some method and you can't use it the next turn. So you do full damage. You do everything. Let's say you got a success all across the board, but you got one complication. You did full damage, but uh, it's broken or it's a little bit unreliable moving forward. Like there's something that happens. Essentially, that's like you did the thing, but you tripped on the way there. Um which makes it for a little bit more interesting so that like success sometimes comes at kind of this like weird factor. Uh, that happens oftentimes there's a whole list of complications that could happen based on weapons and in, in, in melee um, complications and story stuff you can make up for yourself and then there's critical successes which are if you roll a one you get double success um, one we will get to it in combat but we do something a little bit different from the book when it comes to critical critical success in combat but it's really helpful in the story i mean you can get if you're rolling two dice i mean there's a chance that you could get two ones which gives you four total successes I think that I have only done difficulty five stuff maybe three times in the 30 plus episodes, though. Jared did give me a difficulty 57 thing uh, when I tried to lift a Faraday cage with a a slightly superhuman character. Um, (laughs) Trying to prove a point. (laughs) Trying to prove a point. Yeah, I understand. I understand. I'll just remember that, you know. That's Uh, fine. (laughs) The... uh, so that's kind of where uh, where critical success is at. Do you have any uh, more thoughts on success? Well, I want to actually Generally get about license. Oh yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about that. Uh, the 
book does a very good job of giving you some example complications, like Dave said. So I'm on page 96 of the core rule book, and it's in a section that's talking about small guns. And some of the small gun complications, uh, so the text reads, the following are suggestions of possible complications that might occur should you roll a 20 while operating a small gun's weapon. So one is wasteful, so you use more ammo than you thought you did. So you've got really bad trigger discipline, you waste ammo. One is click, so the gun jams or there's a dud bullet or something like that, so you have to spend extra time to clean that out. One is wear and tear, so you can actually reduce the effectiveness of the gun. And last is a a ricochet, so the bullet could hit something that you didn't really intend it to do. And all of these different weapon types have different complications that you can use that really spice up combat a little bit. Um, I'm not sure. Well, I was about to say I'm not sure that's happened to a lot of us. And then I remember just how many times Clark has lost his sword. So yeah, we have a character that generally, and this is the thing. And if you tell the game master, that's like, he really cares about these few things. It's like, okay, how can I take those away from him? How can, how can you challenge a player? And so he, he brought me the character. He's like, he really cares about his sword. I'm like, okay. So every complication he rolls when he attacks something, he's going to drop his sword. And that's going to be a, a, a time that he spends because he's characterly like motivated to go and get the sword or steal it back from whoever, managed to like pickpocket it off of him. There's a whole arc where he gets drunk and loses his sword and has to go down to a sewer for like a whole episode and figure some stuff out, Uh, lose skin in his hands essentially to get this thing back. So there's of course, like that's probably the most common complication with, with weapons in general that we have. Uh, But there, there are other complications I think story wise that we've done. Yeah. Like, dropping your weapon is such an easy one. Like, everybody gets that immediately. Mm. I agree. Uh, Let's talk about AP for a little bit. Um, So, we mentioned before about difficulty tests, um, about having, like, a difficulty zero. And, oh, you got three successes on this difficulty zero, so you get three AP. So, what is AP? AP is essentially a currency that you use. Uh, it's in the regular Fallout games that you use to do actions within VATS, but in this game, it's kind of like a way to buy dice to improve your rolls. So let's say that you started this and you had a, you know two difficulty zero tests and you got two successes on there. So that bumps you up. That gives you in total two AP for both of the uh, of the um, difficulty tests, and in total you get four AP. Um, and with that AP, you're able to essentially buy stuff um so if you have four um there's a kind of a currency system i think you can have a max of six ap per character if i'm i'm correct on that right yes so the action points are detailed on page 18 of the core Mm -hmm. rule book for anybody following along the so page 19 uh there's section saving action points If you don't want to spend the action points you generate immediately, you can save them for the group to use later. You can save up to a total of six AP as a group, and anyone can use action points in the group pool. Um, The way that I've always run this is essentially every time you rest, your your pool, your immediate time that you can use your AP is gone. So everything that you have, like let's say the group has like 12 AP, across the board they're only going to get six when they wake up because that's what's in the pool so the pool is essentially what i always classify it as is the bank of when you rest 
So if you're doing, I mean, if you're awake for like, if you're going for like 24 hours on a character, which I think I've made them do, you're banking a lot of AP. So I don't know if there, now that I'm saying this, I don't know if there's a limit to the amount of AP that you can have. I'm looking, I'm looking and I don't see one. The only limit I see is that the group has a pool of six AP. Yeah. And that the game master does not have a limit to their pool. And the the only limitation I see is there's a you can only spend like a maximum of six AP for like any type of effect. But I'm not as I'm looking at this, I don't know if individual players have a maximum. See, this is this is the process. I think we learned something today. I think that that we're really we're both like teaching and learning together. So there's no no max on AP. Um, but I'll have to to, res- we'll research that further. But yeah, come, it come really... back to us on the on the the uh, after the after the rules cast, the special show that we do yeah. every every rules cast where we follow up on all the things that we got wrong. <laughs> the rules cast errata. <laughs> yeah, the rules. Yeah, exactly. Um, but for additional dice, uh, essentially the first additional dice, so you always roll two. If you want to roll three, that costs you one AP. If you run a roll four in total, that's going to cost you three AP. And if you want to roll five, uh, that's six AP. Um, I've had, I mean, as a group, we've had tests where we really want to see a character do something and get something. And so everybody's like, okay, well, yeah, let's use all of our group AP to see if this character can pass this test. I, there was something with Pep and Arturo in, in Old Nolans, our campaign, where essentially everybody wanted him to do something, and I forgot what it was. I think it was like convince him to, to do something for him, give him a power armor helmet, I think. Or that something sounds, or other. That sounds feasible. And everybody contributed the AP so that he could do that. But he, Pep isn't exactly the best talker. And so even though he rolled five you know, D20s, he did not succeed the difficulty five test of, I think he, he jumped out of a window, landed on the pavement, made a dent in the pavement because he did it in power armor. Um, Brotherhood of Steel, mind you, power armor. Uh, walked over to the guy that owned the weapon shop that is not friendly with the Brotherhood of Steel and then asked him if he could have a power helmet. So, like, there's already a lot of, like, that is a difficulty five. If you can, like, yeah. scare somebody, be really obnoxious, and then ask them for something without anything back, like, without, like, a trade or anything, that's probably a difficulty five, like, charisma plus speech situation. <laughs> with that yeah. level of impression. Um, uh, there's quite a few other things you can use action points for as well. So you can spend one AP to obtain information from the GM. So if you're sort of missing a key piece of info, you can use an action point to help flesh out the story. Some you can use two AP to reduce the time it takes to complete a uh, task. So if you're trying to, you know, hack under pressure or repair something under pressure or anything like that, you can actually spend two AP and it takes half the time that it normally would. That might be the difference between getting caught and getting away scot-free. In combat, you can spend an AP to take an additional minor action. This is things like drawing a weapon or moving. Uh, You still can only take two minor actions in a single round, but this might help you you know, if you need to close distance on an enemy, say you are Clark with a sword and you need to get closer, but you're at far range, you could use two move actions to be able to get into somebody's face and then still have your major action to attack. 
that said, you can spend two AP to take an extra major action. So let's say Clark wants to take two swings with his sword. Any skill test that you attempt is increased by a difficulty of plus one. Um, I think that's... I guess that's cumulative. I'm, I'm taking a look at the, the wording on page 18. Take one additional major action on your turn. Any skill test you must attempt is increased in difficulty by plus one. So I guess that's probably for... No, yeah, because you don't have to you don't have to commit to taking the extra major action until after the first one's done though. So I'm that's thinking true. that's probably for the second major action. Because yeah. why would you commit to spending those AP if your first attack was going to be plus one? So right. um the way I would interpret it is since you can take that AP whenever it probably only affects the second attack. So, you know, if you're already throwing two D twenty and let's say you are, you know, you specialize in a particular gun or something like that. You've got a high perception, you've got high skills, and you're hitting on 14 or better. The chances are good that you might actually get those two successes anyway, because like if if you're Lonnie Haybear and you've got a tag skill of energy weapons and you're looking fours or better to crit and like 13 or 14 or better to hit, hitting a difficulty two is probably going to be fairly easy, especially if you already hit that difficulty one and generated AP. You might generate enough AP to be able to use the major action again. Yeah. Um, The last thing the book details you can do with AP is you can do extra damage with melee or thrown weapons. So if you hit with a melee weapon or a thrown weapon, you can spend... uh, Every AP you spend up to three, you get an additional damage die. Now, the reason you can't do this with ranged weapons is because ranged weapons have something called a fire rate, which lets you do something similar with the currency being ammo instead of AP. So this helps. I I imagine this helps uh, melee weapons and thrown weapons be a bit more scalable to ranged weapons in some way. I think that I think that's I don't think we've ever done extra damage. I know that we've done take an additional minor action and major action before in our play, but I don't think we've done extra damage. Well, Lonnie wouldn't because Lonnie's always using energy weapons, which means Mm -hmm. I'm relying on the fire rate and therefore my ammo to be able to do that. The uh, I'm not sure Pep has used melee too much. Hazel, well. Hazel uses thrown weapons. Pep uses melee on occasion, and Clark really likes using melee. But I think Clark has a different perk that he uses to juice his attacks some. So, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. AP, honestly, like it takes away, um, like in in D and D five e, which we're going to be making the comparisons the whole time. Just you know. Put your seatbelts on, strap in, get yeah. ready, the rocket ride. Um, DMs give advantage or disadvantage um, based on stuff. It's like, okay, well, you're using that, like, you've had a good success point up until now, and you're really skilled in this thing. With the skill plus attribute test of the 2D20 system and AP, I don't have to generate advantage or disadvantage or think about how characters are going to react to that kind of stuff based on their results that far. They're already given currency um, that they can use to 
get the like to increase their odds to get that success. I think that that's one thing that that AP is really good for uh, for manipulating that system. It puts like your D and D advantage or disadvantage system in the player's hands. Be like, okay, yeah, I have advantage because I have three AP, so I'm going to add two AP to my pull. So I'm rolling four dice for this difficulty one skill test. And hey, if I roll four dice for this and I get four successes or whatever, then I just get that AP right back and I can spin that later. So like if you are really confident in something, you can even like get on a roll with yourself. Um, if you're kind of like staying in your lane, staying in your zone, doing some menial things, like you can really like build that onto there. If the, you know, if the skill tests are there and allowed some, right. like oftentimes Part- some of the, uh, like the, uh, when we were robbing the museum, a lot of those difficulty tests were pretty low because, um, Pap was doing a distraction, so it was like everybody was sneaking around at a difficulty zero or one because the horde was elsewhere. The horde got closer as the episode went on, and it's like, okay, now those difficulty tests get harder. But we've banked AP from something else so that we can use to spend to do whatever. In that episode, it was like explode barrels and try to run through <laughs> ghouls with our power armor on without a helmet on, uh, which also did not work very well. But um, stuff like that. And- as a GM, you can control the flow of action points, too, because action points are generated when people absolutely destroy skill tests. Yeah. And some things don't require skill tests. The book actually tells you this. So if your character wants to tie their shoes, this doesn't have to be like a difficulty zero uh, agility and repair that they do on their shoe that generates AP. If something's just simple enough, you can give it to them. And if it seems like players are fishing for it, you could just give it to them. Right. Right. Like, um, like you were looking uh, your character, um, but Lonnie was looking when you escaped vault 18, you were in, uh, the, uh, carousel lounge bar. You were like, is there any back exit for that? I'm not going to have you roll a um, a perception check essentially for that because I know that there's no back exit for that. Like there was only like one way. It was either okay, like try to sneak out or have a confrontation with the group outside. There was no like extra back backs back exit for there, so there would be no point in me being like, okay, here's a skill test. Oh, you really looked and you couldn't find anything, or uh, you right. didn't you didn't find like if there's already a result that's out there that doesn't like move the group forward there's real no like there's there's like no need to roll well there's that like a false negative type two like i'm gonna make a perception check i've got a 28 you don't see anything all right (laughs) right right Right. like does that mean it's well hidden or is there nothing there you create this paranoia with the player but yeah it there's some things like you know it's a little metagamey like if Lonnie said, hey, is there a back entrance? And if Dave said, okay, make me a, a perception survival difficulty three. Like, it really sounds like there's something back here. And and I think that that's, and I think that that level of, of metagaming is fine. And oftentimes if, if the group fails to test and like there is something there, I will say, just know that this I will like preface stuff with like just know that this was a fail for you like you failed this test and this is your outcome in the story yeah so that it's like oh if there was like a back door I would be like and you failed that check I'd be like yeah you looked and you couldn't find anything in the back you were just so distracted by all the alcohol and you wanted to drink it all the and I would say just so you know that's a fail um and then, then you know 
as the story as the story goes on, people may want to look in it and for their own like worth and see. Um, generally, if people are doing the same skill test over and over, and I am personally tired of running it, I will increase difficulty as time goes on. <laughs> just because, just because I'm like, okay, all right, let's. Stop we've it. looked through the bar a million times. Now you're doing a difficulty five because you know that all of your other friends have gone back there, tried to look for something, and for some reason they're all distracted by the alcohol. So the alcohol must be really great. Like at that point, the story writes itself. Yeah. But yeah, the GM is in control of doling those out. Yeah. And uh, the, the fate, uh, fate, fate accelerated, fate core, fate condensed, all those sort of run off the same thing. If you give your players opportunities to do stuff, you know, in those games, you can create these aspects and stuff that'll help out later in the game. So if it feels like your players need a little bit more help, you can, you can juice it a little bit with some easy, you know, like you, you heard a sound or you thought you overheard some conversation or, you know, something that's like a difficulty zero difficulty one to sort of, you know, get them in a groove, generate a few AP if it, it or, you know, you could potentially starve them too, because if there's no skill checks, there's no AP. So I, I believe there's a balance there and uh, definitely like in the, in the session that's coming out, uh, that came out this week, uh, the the party fought a Yagwai, and at the beginning, I think I made the snap decision to give some AP out because, you know, you've got these Brotherhood of Steel initiates that you can use, and they require AP for fuel, and we hadn't really established if anyone had any AP for fuel. So okay, everyone gets some AP, um, but yeah, they are they are a nice resource for players, and and you have to. From like a GM, from a GM perspective, like you have to understand, like even a difficulty zero, people are going to fail, even if they are, you know, spec'd out for whatever. They got a ten in strength and a five in melee, and it's a fifteen. They could, yeah, get it's, it's a twenty-five percent chance. Yeah, you right. got a twenty-five percent chance of failing, and a five percent chance of like failing critically. Generally, and this is kind of in, in a game mastering perspective, the way I the way I do it is like I am free and clear to use difficulty zero through two for most story things that I have planned. Like if we're coming into a story based thing and it's a difficulty zero through two, that's generally like stuff that I have planned. If some our group typically have tends to have a wacky idea here and there. And generally that's where I'm like, OK, because I'm always down. I'm I'm down for whatever. I'm like, okay, but difficulty three, four, and five are kind of where that is. If it's something that's like really crucial to that story, if there's like some like real test or I want them to get it, I'll, I'll say difficulty three. But it's kind of like um kind of like movie reviews or video game reviews. Like a lot of a lot of games are like six, seven, eight, nine. Um, and very few are 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 five and below. And that's kind of like skill tests. Like there's a lot of zero through two skill tests, but not very many three through five. Uh, moving on, let's talk about luck real quick. Um, luck is uh, attached to your luck uh, special. Uh, it's the last one in there. Um, your luck points are equal to uh, the amount of luck that you have. Uh, so let's say you have four luck, you're going to have four luck points. Uh, so what can luck points be used for? Uh, the first one and the most often one we do is misfortune, which allows us to re-roll a one uh, d twenty or three combat dice per luck point spent. So oftentimes. People will want to do a roll. They've already rolled it, and they're like, ah, this doesn't make any sense. Oh, I 
am really good at repair and, and, uh, you know, intelligence. And so I had a difficulty zero test. I got a success and a 20. I want to reroll the 20, spend a luck point. They can do that. Most of the time they get a success from that. Um, sometimes they don't, but, uh, that's the most often when we see, uh, we've had a luck of the draw, which is essentially spending a luck point to add a detail to a scene. Uh, that was during uh, when you all were about to leave for O'Nallens. I think Clark added a detail to the scene where he left. He made Signal make doggy bags of Meyerlurk jerky for everyone. Yeah, um, C- Clark has used luck of the draw several times. Mm-hmm. And it's work to our advantage most of the time just most of the time it has additional detail and it's kind of like you know you're not going to be able to with that like from uh and other people may feel differently but like oh i'm going to add a detail to a scene this isn't like um going into the settings and fallout and spawning in like a death claw into (laughs) like your casual conversation with things like this is like oh um i am unarmed at this point and i didn't expect to be can I have some sort of like makeshift weapon in the corner so that I can have a pistol um, to fire? Like, and it's like, okay, yeah, there's a, a, a 38, like just, is there a knife on the table? Yeah. That kind of stuff. Um, I think those are, those are pretty easy for a look at the draw. Next is a stacked deck, which uh, has you use your luck attribute for a skill test. I don't think that we often use a stacked deck. Yeah, Um, depending on how your character is made, a stacked deck might not be used at all. Because the the goal is you would need a, a special that's lower than your luck. And I think my luck right now is like a six. Yeah. And probably my lowest stat might be like charisma, which might be like a four or five or something like that. So, I mean, to spend a luck point, uh, to spend a point of luck to increase my chance of success by 10%, um, honestly, I would probably be better off using that point of luck to reroll the die instead. Uh, there are statistics that go into this. This is not the stats cast, it is the rule cast. But if you want to talk math one day, let me know. But in a lot of situations, unless you have a mass, like if you've got 10 luck, it might be worth it. But using the misfortune to reroll one of your D20s could potentially be better. Now, if you're rolling a ton of dice, if you're rolling like 5D20, it might be good to use stack deck. If you're rolling 2D20, you're probably better off with a reroll. That's just me sort of estimating the math. And like from from a perspective of like what like a rule for luck. So there's been some I think the most recent one, uh, survival plus luck. I've been doing a few of those. Essentially, if they're like in Star Wars, uh, a lot of like filmmakers have talked about like what is the force from like a not from a lore perspective, but from like a story perspective. Like what is like the you know the push pull. Like, I'm going to choke you with the force, that kind of stuff. And essentially, it's a plot device. So it's like that, like, kind of like fifth element to a scene where, like, somebody is in, like, how powerful they are is dependent on, like, how much they need something. It's kind of like this, like, secret ingredient, I guess, uh, to a lot of stuff. And so that's what I often see luck as. It's like, okay, if there is something that, like, is important to the story, but also, like, a little bit intangible. Um, kind of like there's like a little it's not necessarily magic but like a little bit of a like twinge to it i think that's where i I typically tend to put luck a lot of the time because there's like 
rolling a luck skill in a dice based game can be it's a little meta. silly sometimes. Yeah, it's, that's pretty meta. Uh, so one of the characters that I introduce uh, in the episodes coming out this week. So I, I don't know what it'll be compared to this rules cast, but they have an ability that I tied to luck because it is somewhat magical. And none of the special stats really make sense for magic except for luck. You just kind of have it. Yeah. And, you know, D&D, so wizards learn theirs, and sorcerer, the powers in the blood, and bards, they learn theirs through charisma, and sorcerers through charisma, and, you know, all these other things. Like, there's so many different ways to learn magic, and none of these really felt right for what I was, you know, trying to do with this character. So I use luck. Because like it just it this is random that I have it. Why would it not be random that it works or doesn't work? I think that makes sense. I think I think that's a for us that's like where where it ended up on. Um, I think that's it for our basics. So uh, I think the next thing that we're going to get into is uh, combat. All right, so let's talk about let's talk about combat for a little bit. Um, the great thing about that your character generally is going to have a static initiative stat. So oftentimes when, when you hear D&D 5e, you say roll for initiative. Uh, this one is uh, just a static uh, stat. So generally that is your uh, equal to your perception plus agility. So generally you're going to have like, you're just going to be in the teens at some point unless your perception is four and your agility is four. Uh, which I necessarily wouldn't recommend because a lot of guns use perception and you got to be fast sometimes. Um, but that's how you set your agility. It's static unless you do something with like luck based points or there's something story wise that kind of changes that up. Um, once it's your turn, you can take some actions. Uh, let's talk about minor actions first. Uh, so you can essentially take two minor actions. No, wait, you can take, excuse me. Sorry, I read ahead. One. You can take one minor action per turn uh, unless you have upgraded yourself in some form or fashion to take two. Uh, minor actions include aim, which allows you to reroll 1d20 on the first attack roll you make. Uh, you can also draw item, which is draw one item carried on your person or pick up any object or item within your reach. Interact, which is interact with equipment or environment in a simple way. Move, which is move up to one zone, any position within medium range. And take Kim. Uh, administer a dose of a Kim that you were holding, targeting yourself or a willing character within your reach. Uh, you got to be holding that Kim, too. Uh, next up, we've got major actions. Uh, the first one is assist, which you can assist another character with their next test. When characters, uh, when the character you are assisting takes their turn and attempts their task, you can provide assistance, uh, which is essentially adding you you roll a one d twenty, and then if you get a success, you add that to their success pool. Um, next, you can do an attack, which is make an attack with a melee or ranged weapon. Uh, command an NPC. If you have an allied NPC, you can uh, essentially. Put them under your command. Uh, if it requires a test, there's certain tests you can do. There's some automatic stuff, uh, like using charisma plus speech if there's a person, uh, charisma plus survival if they're an NPC or animal, intelligence plus science if the NPC is a robot. Uh, defend. You can uh, you focus on protecting yourself. Make an agility plus athletics test with the difficulty equal to your current defense. Uh, first aid. You try quickly to patch up uh, the wounds of yourself or an ally. Make an uh, intelligence plus medicine test with the difficulty equal to the number of injuries the patient has. Increase the difficulty by one if you are trying to perform first aid on yourself. 
If you succeed, you can either heal HP equal to your medicine rating, treat one injury the patient is suffering from, or stabilize a dying patient. Uh, you can also pass, which you can choose to do nothing. Uh, you can rally, which uh, you grit your teeth, catch your breath, and prepare yourself, make an endurance plus survival test with a difficulty zero, and save any action points you generate. Um, you can also do charisma plus speech to inspire allies if you feel like it. Uh, ready, uh, which is describing yourself uh, doing a an action, uh, kind of readying that action, say, oh, when they attack, I'm going to do this thing. And it kind of sets you up so that that domino is in place at the moment the situation you described happens, you can do it. Uh, sprint, which means you can move up two zones. So let's say you're in long range, you want to move to close range, you can skip over that medium range and just go right to close range. Uh, or any kind of uh, skill test associated with your turn. Uh, let's stop right there with all of that. Uh, how often, what are the most often like major and minor actions that we take generally as a group? I'm just, I'm kind of like thinking about it. Ob- obviously like attack, we do a bunch of. Yeah. So um, looking at minor, not a lot of us aim. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I'll, I would, but my primary weapon, which is the satch gun, which is just a modified energy weapon has a, um, has a tag on it called inaccurate, which means I cannot take the aim action with it. So I would aim because once you're in like that butter zone of like the range that you need, none of the minor actions really are helpful because usually you're moving is the main minor action. And that's going to be the same thing for like any sort of tactical combat in fifth ed pathfinder, starfinder. Right. So if you're already in the butter zone, you don't really need to move. If you don't need to take a Kim, you're not going to use one of those. If you've got everything in your hand you need, you're fine. You don't need to interact with anything. You're basically left with aim. So that's really the only other minor action. So I would say move and aim uh, are high up and then draw items. So if I'm in combat and I don't have my weapon out, I've got to draw it. Or if it gets knocked out of my hand, I need to bring out a backup. Or someone's hurt, I need to draw it to be able to use it. So draw is pretty important as well, but it's a bit more situational. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as major actions, when you're in combat, attack. You're using attack pretty much all the time. A, I think the 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 common ones you have it are attack. Um, I know that uh, Hazel uses a lot of first aid. Um, sometimes that happens during combat. Yeah. Sometimes that's post. Um, and then we've had some situations where ready has been utilized. Um, yeah, but, I would I would like to use ready on occasion, but you know, it's that is what it is. Uh, I haven't really thrown any combat encounters that require that. Um yeah, most of my tactical, most of most of your tactical combat in fifth ed Pathfinder Starfinder where you have an actual battle grid and you're doing tactical movement, readying mm-hmm. in action is nice because as a ranged combat user, for example, you have to worry about cover a lot. Right. And you have to worry about people moving in and out of cover. So you may want to use ready action. I want to go on Overwatch. So when they pop out of cover, I want to blast them. Or as a melee user, I want to ready in action. If anybody comes through my threatened area, I want to swing at them. Because once you move, maybe you're not close enough, but you know that enemies are going to get close enough. So you want to retain that major action and that's just a a way to gamify that clash 
a little bit if you're not doing something where everybody moves first and everybody attacks simultaneously. Where this one is more like a, a traditional like turn-based RPG where you're just like in three ranges. Like generally, even when I set up like a battle grid, my grids are like you have the party on the right side and the monster on the left side, and I adjust their range based on like their proximity to the monster right. rather than the monster. Like there's not like a giant grid where you're you're moving a bunch of stuff. It's really from like a player perspective, which makes combat a little bit faster. Uh, that way, you don't have to do a lot of like all of the like situational positioning is all theater of the mind at that point um, of of like trying to figure that out. Um, which I know a lot of people. I you know it, typically when I do D and like to do a dungeon, and it's like, hey, you're in a dungeon. Here's the room. Here's the situation. Where are you in here? Oh, the party split up. There's an enemy on this side. Like there is like. To me, it's always been okay. Well, you know, if you're going to play D and D, play D and D. Right. Whereas this is there's some interesting things you could do with ready in action. So you can choose any major action to perform, and then once it triggers, you do it. So you could ready in action to sprint if the Yalgai gets close enough. (laughs) So the Yalgai just spent a turn to get close to you. I'm going to run away two zones. I'm just going to keep running away, and that's I'm just going to kite this thing away and that's what my turn is you could ready an action to attack once something's in close range because maybe you've already moved as close as you can or you've got an advantageous position and you want to reduce the difficulty down because of the range increment so you can wait until something gets in range yeah let's say in that yaogai attack if you're like injured and you have a stim pack on hand it's like okay i want to make sure they take my stim pack so i'm going to use my minor action to stim pack myself and then i'm going to already action that says if the yaogai tries to attack me i'm going to move to long range at that point yeah and then you can just kind of kite it plus depending on how that action works out you may have just wasted that yaogai's turn so true. If, if you've got a spread out party, for example, and it decides to go after Steve and Steve decides, I'm just going to run away. Right. And the Yagwai now has no target. It either has to use its major action to move again or sit there and take it. Um, as far as the other major actions, we've used assist, but outside of combat. Uh, we've tried using command and NPC before, and it's never really worked out to our advantage. First aid, Hazel will use quite a bit. Rally, I don't think we've ever touched. Um, Rally is one of those things where I would probably rather try to make an attack and generate AP that way than, you know, spend a turn trying to generate AP later. There might be situations where if I can generate two group AP and Clark gets an extra attack, that might be better than me attacking right now. So if you were unarmed and couldn't do anything else, rally is a good support move that like when I think if I think of Lonnie in a, you know, completely disarmed and hardly any medicine Rally might be a good use of their skills just because you can try to generate some AP for the other party members so they can do work. And so, if you're rolling, like, if your focus is like, okay, I want to make my guy a smooth talker. Like, I want to make sure my character is absolutely able to talk his way out of absolutely everything. You're not going to really focus on putting a lot of perks or skills into um, into your weapons. And so maybe it's beneficial for you to rally at the beginning like use a charisma plus speech test at a difficulty zero, get that AP and say, okay, now I can like, 
I can pull off some moves because I'll have some more AP to burn and, and some more dice to have. So that oh, I only have like the uh, a pipe pistol that only does you know two damage dice. I can add you know a number of damage dice on there based on the amount the amount of AP I generate. So my weapons are stronger based on just doing that rally. Or put it in the group pool and your your big hitter, if they have two AP that they can pull from the group pool, they just got an extra attack. And you, who made you that know, extra idea, attack? I did, because you wouldn't have been able to have done it unless I rallied you. So that's my damage. Essentially, we're describing a hype man at this point, um, which I... It not. is. It's, it's as close to a bard as you're going to get in combat without any type of magic or... Uh, I think that could work. Control. I think that could work. You would have to have you would have to have more than three players. But I think I think that a bar, like a bard could like a, a fallout bard of some sort could work pretty well. Yeah, hype um, man just to generate AP and to do your medicine and stuff like that. Yep, just support there. I think constantly moving more. zones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> minor action to move one zone and then do a rally. <laughs> Come on, I'm going to ready an action to run. I'm going to provoke this dude, and then I'm going to ready an action to run away from him. <laughs> and then y'all just shoot. It's fine. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, moving on to a more uh, more violent aspect, uh, making an attack. Uh, so there's some steps to making an attack in the game, uh, which is the attack major action. Uh, you choose a weapon and a target. So I'm going to use my sword, and I'm going to attack the boat fly, or the I think that's what's called boat fly. Bloat. I'm just is it bloat, bloat fly? Bloat fly. I think that They're I think bloated? that I I Berenstain bears myself with this. Um, I it's think a that, boat fly. <laughs> I, maybe it's a boat fly. Um, I, I think it's bloat. Well, I think it's boat, so we're I'm going to be wrong, and that's fine. Gonna, but um, okay, if you if you want to fact check, I'll fact check. I'll I'll die on whatever crazy molehill I a, make for myself. You're picking a beautiful hill to die on. For I am. <laughs> Uh, so you choose your weapon and target. Uh, you can choose your hit location if you're doing an aim. Uh, then you attempt your test. Uh, these tests are static. Uh, so if you have a melee weapon, you do strength plus melee weapons. Uh, and then you, and if you have a ranged weapon, you do agility plus small guns, uh, endurance plus big guns, or perception plus energy weapons. Uh, Lonnie does perception plus energy weapons. Everybody else does agility plus small guns. Uh, thrown weapons, you do either perception plus explosives or agility plus throwing. Uh, I know that Hazel uses throwing knives and Mardi Gras or the um, it's essentially the, Mardi Gras beads that she throws at people. Yeah. Um, and unarmored, uh, which is strength plus unarmed test. The only character that used that's been um, uh, the Buck clone in the most <laughs> in the more recent episode. Um, yep. Then you determine so, hit locations. So essentially, if um, if you don't aim, uh, then the DM essentially rolls a d20 or a specialized uh dice uh that has all the different hit, hit locations that are like left arm left leg torso head uh it's different if you're uh mr handy or robot um and then you uh inflict damage so you roll your combat dice which are unique dice to this game which have uh four different sides a blank side a bullet hole side that has a single one a double bullet hole side and then a vault boy head on it um and so that's how you calculate your damage and then you reduce your ammunition uh 
hit locations. Uh, there's a table that you can look at. It's on page 28 of the book. You can look and see um, what your hit locations are. Um, if you're doing like a, a, a virtual tabletop, you can um, find some sort of role to do that. I typically just use, I have a, a dice that I have bought from Modifius that is really nice. Um, I like to use that. Uh, range. Uh, we've talked about range before, uh, that there is close, medium, long, and extreme. Uh, I rarely use extreme. Um, extreme, I think, is going to be more story-based because you're only going to be in extreme distance for a little bit like you're going to be rolling difficulty fours if you're like oh i'm on a hill overseeing a whole town and i'm going to do hitman sniper and pop off the you know the raider that's invaded the town from a hill that's you know a full like mile away (laughs) you're rarely going to be um having any like backfire with that um i typically don't use it but um i do use close medium and long range um for the main zones. There aren't too many weapons that are considered extreme either. So I really, I really don't know what weapons are considered extreme. Maybe well, I don't think I'll there's have like to a look, but I know that there are some modifications that increase the weapon. By a zone, so you probably have to take a long range weapon and mod it. Uh, we talked about uh, combat dice. Um, and so if you talked about the size of the heads, uh, the blank sides don't do anything. Single bullet holes are one damage. Double bull holes are two damage. Uh, but the Vault Boy head is actually a damage plus your damage effect. So a lot of weapons have a damage effect. So like a vicious damage effect means that's an extra damage. So that means every Vault Boy head means two damage. Or maybe there, I think Lonnie, your weapon has spread on or Jared. Lonnie's character has yeah. spread on it, right? It, it has spread and it has penetrate. So yeah. penetrate. And it's penetrate one, so you can have different uh, degrees of penetrate. So the more penetration you get, the more armor you get to bypass. So if someone has a lot of energy resistance on their armor, my satch gun is not going to do a lot. But if I roll those effects and I roll penetrate and I'm able to penetrate two or three of their energy resistance, uh, all that damage goes through. So it is a... It's kind of a force multiplier if someone has armor on them. And then spread, uh, imagine a shotgun. Basically, you do a little bit of additional damage to other random parts of the body. And this gets really disgusting the more dice you throw because you're doing more damage and you're also hitting more locations. And... Yeah, the, the scaling on that gets really gross with more combat dice. And all of the different effects are on page 30, along with the damage types that you can do. Um, the most interesting of the damage types, I think, is radiation. Uh, some, I think we've had ghouls do radiation damage to some of us. Um, that's their own um, type of damage that can't be like healed with a stim pack. Like, you've got to be able to figure something out with that. Yeah, it uh, um, it it removes your maximum hit points if i recall correctly so your maximum is reduced until you fix it uh let's talk about speaking of all of this like damage to people um do you have any anything more to add about damage in general i i do want to talk about the attacks real quick because when we talk about fifth ed pathfinder starfinder when we attack 
you usually have this something called like a base attack bonus or proficiency bonus in fifth ed, and it goes up with your level. And then if you have a high strength, you're good at melee. If you have a high dex, you're good at ranged, but it really only goes up with level and if you get magic items. And in the Fallout games, your attacks are skills. So at level one, you could decide to have your energy weapons at like target number 13, and the max is 16. So if you decide you want to spec into, I just want to be able to hit stuff really hard, you absolutely can do that. And you don't have to worry about scaling. You don't have to worry about your proficiency bonus eventually getting up to that point. Probably by level four, you could have any of those attack stats maxed out for your career. And then you can yep. start taking perks that, you know, help with damage and stuff. So I find that really interesting that it's my energy weapons or small guns or big guns, they're skills. So you can hit the big targets at level one if you really want to, if that's how you want to invest versus D&D where level one, you're never going to be able to hit the Minotaur just because the numbers don't work out. You you have to at least be this tall to have even a chance of hitting the Minotaur versus here. Level right. one, if you want to spec into that sword and you know be able to hit on target number 13 at level one, go for it. Yeah. And I think that that allows like characters to oh like Clark is a Clark is the oldest member of, of our party and um he is like a accomplished mercenary and so he can spec himself out so that he can be like the damage dealer like he was like I'm going to do a character at first it's going to be a glass cannon like they're just going to be able to do damage and if you listen to those first sessions for a while pretty much up until I think the gator claws when Lonnie starts pulling off some some fantastical stuff like he yeah. is the damage dealer um, Clark is the one that is able to uh, to kind of navigate through a lot of that. Um, let's talk about damage and injury. Um, so obviously, like you have your maximum hit points. Creatures are going to be attacking you. Uh, you're going to be calculating like what's your armor. Um, so obviously, so armor pieces. I think you start off. Some armor pieces have one or two dr. You get more, or if the DM gives you more. I haven't really given anybody armor outside of power armor and a helmet because somebody kept on getting their head attacked. Uh, but you calculate that down. Um, if you get, I think it's five or more points of damage, like over your DR to a particular area, that automatically counts as a critical. Criticals are a little bit different than D&D 5e. Like if you are a 20, it's like, oh yeah, that's a crit, so I'm going to do double damage. It's like, well, we have that kind of in, in our style of game, but uh, critical hits in this, in, in the Fallout 2d20 aspect are parts of your body that may be hurt. Um, so I think somebody got a critical recently and I think it was their leg or arm or something that it was just like, they, Oh, um, if this, is this coming out after the most recent session we recorded? This is out. Yeah. This will be out in the most recent yeah, session. Uh, Hazel got both her arms crippled. Yeah. And so like, that's like something that you'll have to deal with. Like th- th- there's its own kind of complications. And so if you have arms in there, they're critically hit. You drop any object that's held in your hand. Their arm is broken, otherwise unable to move. You cannot perform any actions using that arm by itself or alongside your other arm. So, like, look, Ma, no hands. Um, there's, 
yeah. there's not like there is like a cost for um the vulnerability of yourself um dying we've actually had a character almost die i don't know what i would have done if the character died i was going to allow him to die if that was the case um i didn't have any st- I, I was like if pep dies then i guess he there's uh, he's just dead um when you reach zero ap uh you make an endurance plus survival test on your HP. next turn that's ap uh, that'd be a um, completely different game that would be just every time anyone i have no more motivation i've lost the will to live <laughs> lost the will <laughs> uh, you make a uh, endurance plus survival test uh with the uh, difficulty uh, at the number of injuries you have um if you pass the test you remain alive so this isn't like dnd where there's um you, you have like i think three tries to get that yeah you, just, you've actually, got three yeah, it's a race to three. Yep. So you make death saves, and mm-hmm. if you are if you get three successes before three failures, then you live. You just keep on rolling in this one. Like, you keep on endurance plus survival until you fail one. And so, like, it, I don't think people understand the amount of failure that can happen even with a, like, Pep could have rolled a... He rolled, I think, a save on there, or maybe uh, he may have rolled a save. He may have not. I don't recall. It's been. A I don't hot recall. Minute. It's been a while. It's been several months. Um, but like he could have rolled a fail, and that character is dead, and there's no like nobody was stabilizing him because everyone was dealing with a, a feral ghoul horde that he decided to run into the middle of. Um, so hey, I think you play I think stupid that's, games, you win stupid prizes. That's yeah, that's that's Pep. That's Pep in a, in a, in a nutshell. Um. But yeah, that's that's dying in itself. Uh, speaking of not dying, healing. Um, so there's two types of healing. There's uh, take Kim and first aid. Take Kim is like stim packs, uh, right away, that kind of stuff. Uh, first aid, Hazel does this a lot. Uh, intelligence plus medicine uh, that can stabilize a dying patient, heal health points equal to your medicine rating, or uh, treat one injury the patient is suffering from. Um, Hazel has done that a bunch. Hazel has tried to put limbs back onto clark and you know clark has his regrowing ability um you can kind of go through uh, how all that works so stabilizing the dying all that stuff on page 34 of the book uh let's talk about rest for a minute um every time that the party rests i make them roll an endurance plus survival test which essentially counts for their well rested so if they pass i think it's a difficulty one i generally give it um yeah, I give them a difficulty one for the most part because I don't do injury recovery difficulty um, to be like, oh, it's a difficulty four. How hard is it to rest? <laughs> so from from like a, a dice roll perspective, I just do difficulty one. Um, if they get that, then they get an extra two HP um, moving forward. Uh, anything else in healing, dying, death before we talk about um, armor and weapons here? Nothing I can think of. I think the the biggest way we've recovered health is just by sleeping, because yeah. it's just it, it's it's the long rest, and it just resets everything, and that seems to work the best for us. Stim packs have been few and far between, and mm-hmm. they are a expensive option. Truth be told, and I mean, for for from- a party that didn't get caps until level five. That's the 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 options were sort of limited. So natural rest was our best bet. 
and I think it's also like when you're dealing with a lot of items from like a an actual play on a podcast like standpoint, I think you can get pretty bogged down based on what like what people have, what people are doing. Um, I, I think that once you start with the multitude of things, it's hard to keep up with that stuff. Um, so like a stem, like having three stem packs is going to be like a good thing. Like if you have three stem packs, then you're like, Oh, you're dying over there here. Let me just stem pack you. Great. You're, you're yeah. It's like a Phoenix down. You're immediately good to go. You know, at least from how combat has played out in the past. Um, Armor and weapons. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that because sometimes, like, armor is kind of hard to understand. Um, there are uh, essentially three types of damage for armor that it can. There's like a physical resistance, an energy resistance, and a radiation resistance. Each uh, piece of armor has different uh, attributes based on if it's like a full outfit body that has like your arms and legs and chest. Uh, it could be just a specific piece that you have equipped. Uh, any like attack that's made against you, most of the time it's going to be physical. Sometimes it could be radiation. Sometimes it could be energy. Um, you essentially take back. So let's say they do five damage against you, and it was a bull rat and he bit you, um, and you have a DR of two. That means that they only damage you for three. Um, so it's deductive over that time period. Yep. And then we had talked about penetrating a little bit earlier. So if they had penetrating and rolled those effects that reduces the effectiveness of your armor. So more of right. that damage actually gets through. Um, power armor is a little bit different, and we had to learn on the fly for a lot of this. Um, well, there's, so clothing is different from outfits, is different from armor, is yeah. different from power armor. Like they're, yes. they're all different. So clothing, you can wear armor over clothing. Yes. But you can't wear armor over outfits. So... Outfits are like the Brotherhood of Steel fatigues or the Scribe's Armor, the Drifter mm-hmm. Outfit, Formal Clothing, Heavy Coat, Hides, Spike Armor. All these are sort of set pieces mm-hmm. that just kind of exist. Now, I think the outfits, you might be able to modify them a little bit. I think you can you... use a weave on those. I think that there okay. is a weave in the in the book. I'll have to and check. Then... And then you have clothing. So you just have like your Brotherhood of Steel out form, uh, uniform, sorry, vault jumpsuit, road leathers, tough clothing, anything that's just kind of goes underneath. Then mm. you can put armor on top of that. And when you do that, you basically look at the best bonus that either of those pieces give you. So let's look at a vault jumpsuit, which gives you zero physical, one energy, and two radiation. If you put metal armor over that, which doesn't provide any radiation protection, the vault suit's radiation takes precedent versus the metal armor providing a lot of physical resistance, in which case it takes precedent. So they're not additive. You just take the best bonus from each one. And Mm -hmm. then there's also headwear, because most of the outfits and most of the clothing, well, all the outfits and all the clothing do not have any type of headwear. So they just kind of assume that you don't have anything on your head. So you can put different headwear on. This ranges from like army helmets, Brotherhood of Steel hoods, casual hats, gas masks, uh, welder's visor, all these different things that you can put on your head to give your head protection because 
there's a 10% chance that attack will hit your head, and you do not want to be crit there. The, uh, what was that? I'm trying to think. We we ended up giving uh, Pep a helmet, right? Because he yeah, kept on getting attacked uh, in the head. Because he only has power armor head. for his whole body, but he doesn't have anything in his head. And the creatures kept on rolling legitimately to attack his head, and where he had zero DR. Yeah, and then power armor... The way it works is not only does it have these damage resistances, they have hit points. So the actual power armor has hit points. So once you get past the damage resistance of the power armor, so let's talk about the torso, for example. I'm looking at power armor. There's the frame. I'm just going to look at a T45 chest piece here because that's the first one I came to. A T45 chess piece has eight physical damage reduction. And then if you somehow get through the eight physical damage reduction, you have 14 hit points you have to chew through. And then if you somehow get through the 14 hit points, you damage the the armor piece to the point where the damage actually gets through to the chest of the individual inside. So you've finally bypassed all that armor and you can now hit the person. But if you've got a creature that's only hitting six or seven hit points and attack, they're pretty much impervious as long as they're trying to hit the uh, chest. Now, the, the arms and the legs only have four. The helm has six. So the chest is definitely the toughest part. But not only do you have to eat through the DR, you have to eat through the hit points before you can actually start hitting the person inside. So power armor's pretty righteous as far as something to give to a tanky character. Yeah, if there's a if there is like a a big encounter um with like a a death claw or something, like power armor is like is pretty good. I recommend that if you're giving somebody power armor that you also like create some like negative side effects. So like our character Pep, um, he got power armor pretty early on because that was one of his, the core pieces of his character. And um, I pretty much made the power armor socially pretty negative um, that he was accidentally killing people because he would trip on them. And that's like, you know, dropping a, a, a full size car on someone. Um, would like break anything he tried to gently sit on if he felt a skill test. Um, like it is so powerful that it requires to me, it requires some backlash in some aspect because like you were so tanky at that point that it would be very, I would like, would need to homebrew something to, to, to really, oh. or, or really up something to, to attack and, and utilize that. Something a, that has like piercing two and rolls like 14 combat dice to, to be able to do anything. Right, we're we're talking classic RPG design here, and stuff has to have a cost. And yep. a lot of cases, there's a monetary cost to buy certain things. But even if you want to be able to to cast magic, and you think about Fifth Ed Pathfinder Starfinder, if you want to cast magic, you're not going to be good at physical attacks. You're not going to have very good hit points. There's going to be a lot of other stuff that you're not able to do. Right. And that is the cost. In addition, you're limited to what you can cast. So there are costs associated for you to getting access to these powerful rule-breaking things. Because the, the gist of this game is you have armor and you can attack and we have to bypass the attack and stuff. You've given somebody that's like an additional set of hit points. 
Now, it's very powerful. Yeah, it's it's expensive. Like power armor is uh, pretty pricey. Actually, I'm looking at it. It's not as pricey as I thought it would be. There's got to be something wrong with these numbers. They feel like they're an order of magnitude off. But, you know, whatever. This is why I don't have merchants very often. <laughs> yeah, or because... If there is a merchant, it's very low stock. It's like, I sell 10 things. <laughs> yeah, there are guns that are more expensive than a basic armor frame. But the rarity, the rarity is what makes right. it a problem. Because an armor frame's rarity 4, which means nobody's going to have it in stock, even though it is fairly cheap once you do find it. And you probably do have to find it. And then the cost is so cheap that they don't want you selling it. So it's right. worthless to sell. So you got to keep it. Um, game design. But yeah, you, you've created some type of armor that makes somebody impregnable. There does need to be some type of cost to invest in that. Either uh, it could be a perk. It could be monetary upkeep. It could be the social connotations, like Dave said, because in our campaign, the Brotherhood of Steel sort of has a negative connotation in the Old Nolans area. And in Fallout in general, the Brotherhood of Steel is sort of an authoritarian state type thing. And they're, you know, depending on how you feel about that, they might be neutral, they might be bad, they might be good, whatever. Right. But th there are costs associated with that, and it's, it's, it's a, a good game design and good uh, GM utilization there by creating a cost for such a powerful thing. I think, but I think power armor is probably the most powerful thing um, uh, outside of like a really well specced character with like a good modded weapon. I think is pretty like we haven't really run into that that much because we've been using a lot of homebrew weapons and uh, and keeping it with ourselves, but. To briefly touch on weapons, uh, there's you know, a number of different weapons. A lot of the stuff that we use for a while was starting equipment. We kind of homebrewed our own in to make uh, world-specific weapons for ourselves and give everybody a little bit more um, personalized flair um, with each character. Uh, but weapons and armor all have mods that you can really... We haven't really gone into any mods with our campaign, but you can really get into that and, and start like watching those numbers, start going through and saying, okay... What can I build? You can have a guy that's just like, oh, I'm. My whole point is going to be repair, so that I can mod weapons. So I don't necessarily need to be good at, at like doing the maximum damage because I am like not only repairing my weapons, but I can do everybody else's and upkeep everything and put mods onto them. Um, that, like there's a whole world of that out there that we really we really don't touch that much. Um, generally, if you want to upgrade, in my opinion, of what I've been doing, if I want to upgrade a weapon. I have just been giving a new weapon, but as we go on, like we're probably attached, like Clark is probably attached to his gun sword. Um, and let's say he wanted to add like a, I don't know, a piece of it at the bottom. That's like a, like he wanted a L instead of the, the gun being a pistol, maybe it's a shotgun. Like there is probably a mod yeah. that I could make to put it onto that. Well, one of the weapons that I made, so for Servenia, I made a heirloom shotgun for her and it was basically mm -hmm. a modified shotgun. I just named it. And a fully modded out shotgun with, I think it was medium range, mm -hmm. two-handed, reliable. So if you try to give me a complication, no, you didn't. Reflex, <laughs> spread, and a fire rate of four. It's already doing eight damage. So if I invest more ammo, 12 damage with spread. And spread is nasty. Yeah, it is. So the, the weapons can get 
really stupid really quick. If I I'm just going to roll a uh, uh, I'm using roll twenty right now to see what that looks like. Yeah, that's uh, nine damage plus. Well, did well, I get any uh, spread error? You got a, a whole six oh spread. Oh my god! So uh, four times six is twenty four plus nine is thirty three damage. Now, if something had dr four physical, all that's like gone. But something that doesn't have dr physical, that's really disgusting yep. from a, a fully modified weapon. So. Yeah, at, at a certain level, the, the crafting becomes uh, pretty important. Important, yeah, I would say so. Um, also, if you're like, if your group is not invested in mods or in stuff like, you can always like dumb down monsters a little bit. That's 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 pretty simple to do. Um, and as a game master, you can lie. Oh yeah, you can just lie. I, I rarely. It's like, oh yeah, game masters lie. I rarely lie. No, I've I've, rarely I rarely lied about way. something because I love watching everyone fail. That's my favorite thing. Well, I so for some bosses, I've I've had some bosses that just whoa, what you do here? I've had some bosses that didn't last long enough, and for story yeah. reasons, like I'm not even going to give them like 50 extra hit points or something. I'm just going to they need to take two or three more hits at least. Some of the other party members need to have an opportunity to attack. Yeah. With the Yagwai fight, I was prepared to pump the brakes if I needed to, just because we hadn't really tried anything like that yet, because the Yagwai was like a level 14, something yeah. like that, and we didn't really know what it looked like. A lot of the other combats we had, the party sort of tore through. So Most of my combat encounters have a light puzzle element that generally it's like that's the barrier to getting into doing damage um yeah and then also like you can do a two-hour session uh for us and then if you're not done with a combat encounter in like an hour hour and a half then you gotta be like oh that's an hour hour Oops. and a half combat session <laughs> that's probably gonna get to cut down into you know half that time so you need to be kind of cognizant of like how that how, think of it more like an action movie than a uh you know than a like a D game where like yeah. you can you can really pathfinder starfinder that stuff you can really like get down and start grinding and start like really doing some as the british folk call it some grafting getting down there and uh going at it all right so let's talk about let's talk about game mastering um I like didn't have a whole lot of experience in game mastering uh, before I started doing the uh, Fallout game. Um, it took me a while to learn some of the like pitfalls uh, that you can fall into of um, building either too much story, uh, like what kind of story should you be building, like what kind of framework, what's your GM style. I think you get all of that by um, just trying. So if it's your first time and you're like, hey, I want to run Fallout 2D20, Pick something simple. Like my first session or two was just like introduce the group. There's one NPC that they interact with. There's one fight where they fight essentially mole rats. Um, Everybody gets a little bit of of combat. Everybody gets a little bit of social cues. 
um, everybody kind of like makes some decisions together and then rolls out. What's what's your kind of advice for, for, for a first time? Think of it like a tutorial or a beginner box. So I believe Pathfinder 2nd Edition, well, Pathfinder and Starfinder, the Pezo products, have these beginner boxes. And they have these adventures in the beginner's box, and they're based around mechanics. So the first adventure you do teaches you about skill checks. The second encounter you do is a combat, and maybe this one is like a puzzle. So you or any type of video game now where the the very beginning is a tutorial and you just don't know it yet. Like, hey there, you just woke up from cryosleep. Can you take a look around? All right, now let's make sure you're able to walk. Let's check those actuators out. Give us a big jump. Here's a weapon. Shoot down this range. So it's kind of teaching you the controls and stuff and then doing little combats and stuff like that so you can learn mechanics and stuff. So if you have a brand new cadre of players it's a great way to introduce them when you have experienced players then you can look at the world building and stuff like this is where you are learn the world you you have a handle on the mechanics now learn the world and that's why i like games like um tales from a loop things from the flood because i can use a setting that people know about So the 1980s in this city right here where everybody grew up. So now that you've taken that barrier out of trying to learn the setting, the only barrier left is trying to learn the mechanics. So Mm -hmm. like you said, for the beginning of this game, eventually we are going to go to all nylons, but we are at some nondescript uh, base. Right. And we're meeting each other. And we're doing some basic things, and we're doing a basic combat. So we're learning some mechanics right now. And once we get more comfortable with the mechanics, even though we're kind of being railroaded towards Old Nylons, that's fine because we're learning mechanics as we go. And then once we go to Old Nylons, this is an opportunity for us to learn the setting. And then we kind of build on that, build on that, build on that. So as far as world building goes, that's good to try to introduce your players uh, and I think it's t- always good to do to to like if you you don't want you don't want the ta- you don't want the like quintessential tavern setting for too long, um, and so introducing it, some sort of like, hey, something is happening. Like uh, I like the the beginning of Kotor Kotor one. It's like you make your character, and it's like wake up, man, the ship is under attack. Like you got to get out of here. My name is this. And we're just going to go. We got to go right now. Like we got to, we got to go do this thing. Like to me, like for an experienced player or like, like that's a fun set to get into. Cause you already, like if you are experienced, you know, your character, you know, what's happening. You can just like, okay, cool. I can roll with these punches. I, I think with the beginners, it's like easy to kind of have like a little ease in, but oftentimes like, like a pitfall that I've made in the past is like that running too long. And so it's like, understand it's like, okay, have a scene break, like have like a, you feel rumbling underneath you because it's, you know, 20 Buffalo are coming stampeding through your, your saloon. I don't know why we're in the old West now. Um, but that's just, that's just where we are. Um, but like uh, creating some sort of like a blockade or some sort of like problem for everybody to do outside of like a, Hey, what's up, man? Welcome to the the reunion. How you doing? Great to see well, you. We, the, you meet at a, a bar or you meet at the saloon is the precursor to a session zero. 
So now games will do a session zero where we can talk about how do these people know each other, and we can establish that fiction. Some games have it built into their system. Fate, for example, there are questions like, look to the person you're right, establish a relationship with them. Um, there are, if you go on itch.io or probably drive through RPG, there are probably supplements that establish how do these characters know each other as part of a right. background generator. So it, it's part of character creation now in a lot of games. So, you know, we had an idea of who our characters were, but rising sun settlement was essentially we meet at the bar right? and we have a common task. Uh, this could have easily been we had been imprisoned for 20 years and you know there's a prison break and how have we've established our relationships with each other over the past 20 years or something like that like that could have been a hook there and you know that's just how we we know each other we know how we know each other we have pre-existing relationships and just like somebody reading a book or listening to a novel or an audiobook or something like that, the reader, the viewer, the listener is now learning about some of these relationships, and we respect their intelligence by not being so ham-handed with it. Like, you know, oh, I I can tell that these two characters are friends without them saying, we're friends! You know, like that type of deal. But yeah, yeah. A session zero, consider that because that is going to help you um, get everybody on board. Everyone have like the same picture and idea. And if you are like playing like Fallout TTRPG or uh, Fallout the role playing game, uh, you can like an easy way to like learn the world is like you can just play the games like it is directly inspired by Fallout 4. Um like learning that world, I think is pretty, pretty simple to understand. Um, I spend most of my time I spent, I was like, okay, I have like, I have like points and, and, and quests for these people to go on. So we had the initial like rising sun settlement and then all Nolans. And then in all Nolans, I said, okay, there's like, like six different places that these people can go. Um, but I'm not going to have them go to all six like they're filling off a checklist. I'm going to make them choose where they go to. And then by what they choose, they get to experience certain parts of the world build that I've done. So from my perspective, like it's more important to build a world and like, like Fallout, Fallout's always had factions. Like there's a whole um, super mutant faction in all knowledge. The party really doesn't, the party talks to a janitor and a guy that's at Rising Sun Settlement that works at the radio. They rarely talk to any of the super mutant factions because outside of the game, I sent out a, uh, a, uh, a survey that was like, hey, what of these interests you? And I can build that into the story. And then I took the most popular ones and said, OK, this is kind of like the layout for where the party's going to go. So I, yeah. I think also like knowing your players and what they are interested in is important when you're building your story, but having those things in the background from your world build helps inform you later down the line. And you can always mix and match. If you have an idea of what you would like for the party to encounter. And you also get an idea of what the party is interested in doing. So, you know, we go see Ella Fitzgibbons and maybe on the way we're attacked by two super mutants. Or maybe we wanted to go see, you know, go the Sweet Chariot 
and we're attacked by two super mutants on the way. Or maybe we wanted to go to the Superdome to talk to the super mutants, and there was a misunderstanding, and we had to fight two super mutants along the way. Like, you could have picked any of those, and you could fashion, like, what's the end result here? What faction resonates with people the most? What are people, you know, what are people interested in? And you can still have them sort of host that there, there's a lot of memes that go around like you know this npc this throwaway npc i made it is now it just made is now like this beloved character that all my players like and you know will love and protect them and die for them if they need to and it's truth you you really don't know what your players are going to like tabletop rpgs are a collaborative storytelling process so you can create some ideas, and they won't survive contact with the players. But you can still use some of that stuff a little bit later. You can roll with those punches. You know what type of encounters you want to do. You know what type of puzzles. And does it matter if it's Ella Fitzgibbons or the leader of the uh, Pigskins or, you know, as long as the motivations can be changed a little bit, does it matter who's giving the the task or what type of task it is? You can You can kind of roll with those punches. And, and that's kind of like from like the perspective of our party when we came, Elphus Gibbons was the quest giver that had a, a previous like beef with the Brotherhood of Steel, and that set off Lonnie. So that when he met another quest giver, um, Marty Buffon, he was like, okay, at first, at first, he was like, okay, yeah, I'm more in line with this because they are more aligned with me. So I trust their word a little bit better than another quest giver, which is like have those options there of like, hey, here's people telling you to do essentially the same thing, but with little tweaks and differences there. So you don't get like put into the thing of like, hey, it's your commander here. Uh, go and, uh, you know, fetch me three rabbits and uh, come back to me at the dawn, you know? <laughs> Like having those yeah. those kind of like fetch quests, like giving a little bit of agency over over who who you like the group aligns with uh, and what and what they want. Yeah, and the elephants given things was pretty interesting because nobody except Lonnie had any type of relationship with the city, mm-hmm. and she was pretty neutral to everybody but Lonnie and just the stuff that you know, she was doing, it, it was this big paradigm shift. And Lonnie just automatically like, I don't like her. Right. And it, it's not because she's bossed me around or done anything like inherently bad, but I, I don't like her. Just there's, I really don't want to help her. <laughs> right. And so like, you can make, you can make a character like signal who is like supposed to be like, the beloved big guy that wants to hug and also like he's like the the lovable barbarian like character um yeah it's kind of kind of in a lot of different um media and stuff uh but then like when your quest givers are more like have some stakes like signal stakes are like he loves Meyer lurks and um well he technically loves Ella Fitzgibbons because that's his girlfriend yeah um, but like when you have quest givers that have some stakes, you just be prepared for your party to be like, oh, you know, I don't know how I feel about this. And so how like have some backups in mind, have some ideas of like, okay, what are some nuggets for them to like have? So like Clark really doesn't care about anything outside of money, like as a, his initial character. And so it's like, okay, how do I motivate him to help the city and do a settlement? It's like, okay, well, 
I got to have a money factor in there. I've got to be able to promise some sort of wealth. Um, I think Lonnie, uh, Hazel and Pep are all three people in my setting that, um, are pretty, uh, motivated by just like intrinsic value of like helping other people and like generating like some sort of respect with other people. Uh, whereas Clark is more like classic mercenary. I'm only here for the money. I'm only here for, you know, I'm here for a good time, not for a long time. And so it's like, you gotta be able to have a few different strands to pull people. Um, so I always say that from my experience that the world building is important. Um, and I think that if you're going to spend time like doing a lot of writing and a lot of like detailing, have the world build, understand that you're not going to use the world build all the time. And really like your scenarios and stories should be directed by your players rather than yourself of what you want to see. I think that that's fine to have beginnings and endings that are in your realm but like the steps to get there like of how how you get into vault like i had the beginning scenario of they got to walk in the city and be escorted in by people to talk to the quest giver and get their new weapons and at the end they had to go to vault 18 everything in between there i was like okay here's some different ideas that i have in mind field out to the group see what direction they want to go and then use those tools as ways to get into the the final area so that's uh the free league games kind of do that for tales from the loop things from the flood where you have a mystery and Mm. you have the introduction to the mystery and you have the facts about the mystery like what's actually happening and the motivation of the person or the group whatever and you might throw in a few details about how people are supposed to find out that information and that's it you've got a one-page adventure or outline and that's probably good enough for a three to four hour play session. Because, uh, again, uh, a good tabletop RPG is a collaborative storytelling process. So it is collaborative world building as a result. Otherwise, you are just reading your fan fiction to four people. So, so right. there does have to be some collaboration. Now, it, it sounds like Dave, in this particular case, he introduced Ella Fitzgibbons. He knew her motivations. He knew what he wanted the end result to be. And everything in the middle, this party just kind of made happen. And the the GM, in this case, Dave, knowing that like these are the pieces that need to fall in the place, these are the motivations and stuff, he can kind of shift those around as necessary so you do need to have an idea of where you want your story to go at least the the broad strokes but a lot of those details are likely going to be filled in by your players and you can try to railroad them but um it's a different experience if you can just let your players do some of the work because sometimes your players fears can create some of the best encounters if someone with an off chance says I think Clark said at some point that all the Brotherhood stills good for is like shooting mole rats and something. And that's what inspired me to have like, we're going to go hunt mole rats, like just turning that reality, tur- turning mm-hmm. that one off comment into a, a reality and stuff like it, it, it adds to um, that. But well, it's like uh, you don't plan for Pep, like Pep, when Pep got power armor. It's like, OK, I had a general setting of like there was a story dump for Lonnie from the paladin in charge that was like, hey, I need to talk to you since he was part of the Brotherhood of Steel. There was an interrogation happening where I had no clue, like like the Free League publishing, like Signal had some facts that he was willing to to give 
based on the interrogation, but a lot of that was like improv and hey, I'm gonna get I'm gonna try to convince this person to get out of their power armor by trying to fight them and then steal their power armor while they're trying to fight me. And then I have this like and then intimidate them away to make them go away. So I just have this like power armor. But what are the implications of that? It's like, well, they went to the city, caused a ruckus, and now the, the city's looking for people that's involved with the Brotherhood of Steel. And now they think that there's it's like, you know, what's the domino effect of these solutions? Yeah. So, like, the next time they go into Old Nolens, it's going to be a very different vibe, very different people because of the impacts that the party had on that setting. Like, my my original idea for what Old Nolens would be is very different from what it actually is, like, based on the story yeah. that we all told. Uh, another part about world building... Uh, you had touched on motivations for individuals. And I've had GMs do this before. Have your players create a wish list. So if you want to know what motivates your players, have them make a wish list of like, what's, what's your dream weapon? What's your dream armor? What, you know, what, what are some things that you'd like to see in the story? So, so get their input because that's going to be really motivating to you. It's going to motivate inspiration for you to be able to build the world as well. So, for example, A's, uh, Pep and the Power Armor. We, Dave knew that eventually that's one of those bucket list check marks that Pep wanted to, or you know, the player for Pep wanted to, to mark off. They wanted to get Power Armor, and we were able to do that fairly soon into the story. But there's stuff that we can space out as well. So Lonnie, for example, is an orphan, and we don't know who Lonnie's parents are. And Lonnie isn't sure he wants to know who his parents are. Jared, on the other hand, thinks that makes some pretty interesting story because that's going to create some varying degrees of complication depending on who they are, if there's any siblings, if there's any other extended family, if I'm the long-lost son of something like that, it you know, or you know, the, the the bastard child that shouldn't exist, or, you know, like there's so many different implications and stuff. And that is a basically a bullet I've put in Dave's gun. Right. And <laughs> that there's ways that like even any point. There's ways that even players like influence that. So like when we were getting the initial load of settlers into the thing, I didn't think about like what these settlers background were. They were just like blank slates. It was like 20 people on a trolley headed out of all knowledge. And at the end of it, it was like, are you all, are all of you born on, on February 31st or whatever? You know, the thing that Lonnie says for the orphans. And at that moment I was like, I didn't expect them to be orphans, but that's actually a really interesting thing for a person that is a mayor of a settlement to have them all be kind of similar to him being these like 16, 17, 18 year olds. Well, that's um, what I was so, thinking too, because they, they matched me. They weren't ghouls. Yeah. That was really the only explanation I could come up with at that point. Because like, as soon as you said that, it's like, damn, that sounds like Lonnie. I wonder if they're all orphans. I wonder if, if Signal just raided an orphanage because those would be some of the few people that couldn't be controlled by, you know, what was going on in Old Nolens, and that's right. what I came to. So you, if you had said no, like, you know, I raised their hand, that would have raised a lot of questions for me, like, where were there other humans? This is not... <laughs> Right. You, unless something like in like intentionally, like my advice is always like leave things amorphous unless they have like a specific purpose. Like 
there are um, very specific NPCs that are um, essentially villains um, and some that are just like, hey, these are characters that the group's going to interact. Like Snick is a great one. This is a character that I don't have a plan for that the group is going to decide the story for. Like their actions are going to affect Snick however they are now they like snick has gone from the story now to to the you know joy of everyone but at some point snick will be snick will be back and we'll have different thoughts based on like their interactions with him um same for a lot of the other npcs that we've had um pretty much anyone um outside of like main villains that i have in mind are um like very much influenced by the group and i think i think having that 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 improv mindset of like yes and it's like yeah, you're right about that. And it's this like, yes, all of these people are orphans. But when you brought it back to the settlement, three of them were like, we want to be in a gang and wear leather jackets and save like, you know, tunnel snakes rule like that. <laughs> it's like, well, and we're also talking about a game system where if you said they aren't orphans, I could have spent a luck point and said, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, um, so the, you have a game that allows the players to mechanically influence your story. So don't be too married to individual minor details. Yeah, I agree. Um, if you want to essentially you could play, like you could go back and, and decide that you want to run a game in one of the um, like previous game settings. You could do a Boston, everything's set up for Boston in the book. Um, if you want to do new Vegas, which is very popular fall three, all of those are pretty easy because you already have your map. Like your map is already yeah. good and you can change it based on time period. You'd be like, yeah, this is like 10 years after the setting of the game, but you still have like your setup. You have your locations. People are familiar with that. Um, the world building, the the homebrew takes a little bit more time um, to get everything right. And then you realize, okay, this is a unique setting. So there's gotta be unique weapons. There's gotta be unique armor and there's gotta be some unique factions that are changing things. And there's gotta be some static ones, but those also have to be changed in some ways too. So I would say that if you're looking to just like start off and run a game, I think that the, the world building aspect took me a while. That's what I spent most of my time at first doing was like, here's where everything is. Yeah. Um, keep it small. Keep it intimate. Yeah. I mean, we're, Anything else on, we're in one city and the surrounding area. Like, keep it, keep it small. And then you don't have to do as much world building. I and the only reason I did all of Southern Louisiana is because I have a buddy that's from Baton Rouge. Then I'm like, "Hey, how big is Baton Rouge in Lafayette?" And he was like, "Eh, they're fine. I mean, New Orleans is where it's at." And so, like a lot of the stuff that he's told me about growing up in Southern Louisiana, I've been able to use in the game. But like, I couldn't do. Hey, this is all of the West Coast of California. We've got San Diego, L.A., oh, and Alexandria. Like we. Can, there's too many there's too many places at that point um as opposed to having really like three main cities and a bunch of stuff in between um this is is a little bit more manageable let's do character creation do you want to do this in roll 20 i have it recording already in roll 20 um if you want um, to do it in there or i can um do it in post whatever is easiest for you because Let's, when we go into roll 20, we're going to be able to see the changes being made real time. So if I type a number or you type a number, it will work. Plus, also, if I've got access to. Yeah, you've got access book, to the rule book and GM and everything. So you can 
All of my secrets are open to you. Perks. Yeah, so we can drag and drop those perks and stuff in there, and yep. it just works fine. But I figured. Um, do you want to start by? I, I know you had an idea for making. Was it Jack McPumpkins that you wanted to? Yeah, make? Yeah. Well, yeah. Looking at the different character types, I wanted to start with one that was like not many options. Yeah. And then also pick something that most people are going to resonate with. I don't like. I don't think everyone's going to pick robots. I think a GM will probably be like, okay, we can't have five robots. Can we not have like? Can we have? Where's the token human in the party? Where's the, um, <laughs> a human that's very convinced he's a robot? Uh, yeah, beep boop beep. Um, a, a synth. Which is a robot very convinced they're a human, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that was just an idea because we know stuff about Jack McPumpkins, so we can pick things to support our decisions for Jack McPumpkins. I mean, what do we know about Jack McPumpkins? He likes cars. He can drive, so he's kind of got he, a he pilot. He does what he's skill. told. <laughs> yeah. I mean... If he's a guard, then he probably has some skill with guns and probably. all that. So, I mean, we we can make some assumptions about okay. Jack McPumpkins. I like it. And like then, it. as far as like a survivor, like what do you what do you think? Um, we can do a Jack McPumpkins, and then let's do a vault dweller, just um, basic, and we can make up a vault that they come from. Um, I can use um, I can just use the perk that I gave a uh, buck originally um okay so like uh um where was he vault 28 yeah yeah we can just do a, a vault 28 dweller yeah vault 28 dweller yeah okay um they have fewer options than a survivor that probably works though because yeah. there's going to be a subset of people that want to be a vault dweller so i think a lot of people are going to want to be a vault dweller. i saw people talking today that they um want to do a whole campaign based on a vault and i was like huh. You do that. You just have to be a big vault with a lot of different rooms. Yeah, you could potentially do that. I could see like the politics or something. It would probably be good for like a one shot. But yeah. good. I on think them for like an actual one shot, like an actual like we're gonna sit down for three hours and play a game. I think a vault, like a escape the vault, I think would be a good like. Well, that's your Fallout Three tutorial right there. Yeah escape the vault you can you know make like five npcs and just like roll was it the gary vault is that the gary. everyone was <laughs> gary yeah and then all of the um so all of the things that i've added have all been like based on on lore the only thing that i haven't based on lore is i mean i guess cryptids exist but the um, the Lugaroo is the only thing that is like... Yeah, the Lugaroo is going to probably see some action the first time we play in that again because... the uh, But the um, the clones are all just like successful versions of Gary. Like I read up on that lore of like how they made Gary. And so like like <laughs> lore-wise, every person in New Orleans is like a it's successful a Gary. Gary. Yeah. Just from like the, the science behind it because I didn't want it to be a synth. I just wanted it to be like direct clones of people. Um, yeah. So they're all Garys, and uh, effectively, like I think the Martys are like technically super mutants, but they're not like um, big and green and strong. Yeah, it's all, all based right. in the lore. It's all 
It's all deep let's, in there. Let's let's make some babies. Sure, yeah. Uh, so we wanted to walk through character creation uh, and kind of give you a, a nice little test of, of how that works. Um, we're not going to walk through absolutely everything with character creation, but we did want to show you how to make essentially two characters. Um, so I think uh, Dr. J over here, he's going to be uh, starting us off by uh, making a Jack McPumpkins uh, style character. All right. So let's make a, let's make Jack McPumpkins. So right. I need to, I'm going to add myself a Dr. J's Jack McPumpkins. This is an all players save. I hit the wrong button. I'm really good at this, I promise. Show to players, so you might be able to see that now. So yeah, I can Jack see it. You got it. Mick Pumpkins. Now, I want to pop this out so I have a big view here. So, Jack McPumpkins is a ghoul. So, uh, when you do character creation, uh, this, if you're following along in your core rulebook, this is page 50. Uh, when you create your character, you'll be asked to make a number of choices on their origin, special attributes, skills, perks, and then determine their derived statistics. And choice one is to choose our origin. So the core origins that we have available are Brotherhood of Steel, so that's like your Lonnie Haybear, a ghoul, a super mutant, Mr. Handy, a survivor, and that's going to be your, your Clark, your Pep, and your Hazel, and Vault Dweller. So uh, back in the day, that was like your, your Buck character. So Jack McPumpkins is going to be a ghoul. So that is where we're going to start. Now, if we go to page 52 of our um, core rulebook, every origin has their own trait. And I realized that I can't do it like this if I'm going to drag stuff over. So we have uh, our own traits here. Now, ghouls have the trait necrotic post-human. You are immune to radiation damage. In fact, you're healed by it. You regain one hit point for every three points of radiation damage inflicted upon you. And if you rest in an irradiated lo radiated location, you may re-roll your dice pull when checking if your injuries heal. In addition, survival becomes a tag skill, increasing it by two ranks. So uh, we're using roll 20 right now i should be able to take necrotic posthuman and add that as one of my traits right here so um necrotic posthuman is going to uh, give me a tag skill so if i go to my core sheet which has all these different skills i can go ahead and um tag my survival and give it two points because that's what a tag does it increases the rank by two points so that's kind of the basics of what i get for being a ghoul uh, the different origins will have different bonuses but this is just kind of what i start off with right now now step two is going to be increasing my special now this is discussed on page 58 
So at the beginning of creating your character, every special attribute starts with a rank of five. So I'm going to go ahead, increase all of these to five for now. So I'm a, an average Jack McPumpkins at the moment. You have five points to spend to increase your attributes, and each point spent increases a single attribute by one. Use these points to buy ranks in any special attribute. No attribute may be increased above 10, although your origin may alter this maximum for some attributes. You can reduce a special to four to gain a, an additional point uh, towards your special. So we're looking at Jack McPumpkins. What is Jack McPumpkins good at? Well. Let's see, Dave, what is Jack McPumpkin's good at? Do you, do you, do you find Jack McPumpkin's to be charismatic? I find him to be charismatic, yeah. I would think that okay. he would be a charismatic kind of guy. Um, and with okay. a name like with, with a name like Jack McPumpkin's. So maybe I put two points into charisma, right? Now. Leaves me with three. Now, Jack is... Uh, one of the guards for the uh, voodoos. So he's probably got to be good with guns. So I'm going to give him a point in agility. Actually, I'll give him two points in agility, and that leaves me with one point right here. And let's see here. I also want to give him a point in perception. Because there's some of the skills that rely on perception that I kind of want him to be good at. So I've assigned my five special points right now. And I can determine whether or not I want to reduce any of those fives to give myself some additional points. So do I want to reduce strength? Do I want to reduce endurance, intelligence, luck? Um, let's see. I don't know if Jack is the most bright individual yeah i agree i don't think he's very i don't think he's very smart okay so i'm gonna drop his intelligence to four that gives me another point to play with and that's also the m minimum that i'm allowed to use my intelligence so where would i put that point well maybe he's lucky because for him to have gotten a job with the voodoos that seems like uh, a little bit of luck may have been involved for that and just looking at my character sheet right now i think i'm happy with what I've got. So right now my special is strength five, perception six, endurance five, charisma seven, intelligence four, agility seven, and luck six. Uh, so if you add all of these up, it should be 40, uh, 11, 16, 23, 33, and 40. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the core rule book has some suggestions for what you can do during character building. Uh, there is a, a balanced approach where everything sort of hovers around that five range. There is a focused approach where one of your primary stats is an eight. And there's even a specialized approach where one of your stats is a nine. And you could go even harder than that if you wanted to. You could have a, a 10 in strength and a 5 and everything else if you really felt like it, if that's how you wanted to specialize your character. So I'm happy with my character right here. I see that I have uh, a good charisma and a good agility. 
So that's something I may want to consider when I'm picking skills. Now, at the bottom of page 58, we go to step three, which is our tag skills, and then we buy our skill ranks. We're going to choose three skills to be tag skills. Tag skills are the most important skills to your character and represent specific areas of expertise and knowledge that your character possesses. Your origin may grant you an additional tag skill, and our origin did grant us an additional tag skill. We got that in survival, so we don't have to do... So that decision's made for us. We have three additional tag skills we want to make. Now, tag skills are important because you, when you roll your 2d20, normally you crit on a 1. So if you roll a 1, you get uh, two successes. Now, at the moment, if Jack McPumpkins were to make a survival roll and he got a 2 or better, that would be two successes. Now, skills can have a maximum rank of six, which means if eventually Jack McPumpkins had a survival of six ranks and it was tagged, he would get two successes on a six or better, which means a 30% chance on each D20, which is pretty significant. So imagine that on you know a skill like small guns or energy weapons or, or some of your combat skills. This is what we were talking about earlier, where you could crank up your skills to the point where each time you roll a d20, you've got an 80% chance of getting a success and a 30% chance or 80% of getting at least one success and a 30% chance of getting two successes on each d20. That is pretty significant, all things considered. So now that we've kind of talked about the ramifications, let's pick some tank skills. So each of our tag skills begins at rank two, and all the others begin at rank zero. So let's pick tag skills. Well, um, we know that he's got a good agility, and if we look at agility, small guns, sneak, throwing, we probably want to get small guns in there, just because we know that he's a member of the Voodoo's. He's going to be expected to be a guard and handle guns. We can go ahead and give him small guns and rank two. Dave, were you going to say something? Uh, no, no, oh. I agree. I'm with okay. you on the small guns cool. situation. Yes. Now we also I'm following know... my book like a good little boy. Oh, cool. Excellent. Now, we also know that Jack McPunkins is a car aficionado. Somehow that 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 he fact is. was interjected. So I'm going to give him the pilot skill and bring that up two ranks as well because that's something that he's passionate about. He's interested in, so he's just got that. Now we have one more tag skill. What would be important to Jack McPumpkins? Well, we know that he's got a high charisma. So let's take a look at some of our charisma stuff. So there's a barter and there's speech. So Maybe, let's use barter. Maybe Jack McPumpkins is really good at getting a good deal. You know, but before the preservationists had their social income system, he was really good at saving caps. He wants to retire early. That that was his goal. But even with the 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 caps, the the social cap system, he was able to get some pretty good bargains, maybe get some stuff that was perhaps outside of what he should have been allowed to get. So we're going to give him barter there. Now, um, 
when we're rolling our dice now, just to just to be sure here, when we roll barter, we're going to add our charisma, which is seven, plus our ranks in barter, which is two. So our target number would be nine. And the GM would set the difficulty as, like, how many successes do we need? Do we need zero successes, one success, two successes? And we're looking for nines or better on our dice, which is about a 45% chance on each die. So, point seven, point seven. So for difficulty one on a barter check, you're looking at about a 70% success rate. Well, just doing the rough math in my head, which is pretty good compared to, say, like athletics, where it's not tagged and it's a strength-based. So you're looking at, you know, a 50% chance of success on that particular roll if you're rolling two dice. So... um these are where these numbers are important and why I might be choosing tag skills that go along with some of these attributes that I pumped up as well. Or you might go the opposite direction. I know that the book says do your special first, then your tag skills. But as you get more comfortable with character building, you might want to tag your skills and then pick attributes uh, accordingly, just depending on what your style is. So now that I've picked my tag skills, I can now buy ranks in my other skills. I have a total number of skill points equal to 9 plus my intelligence, and each skill point may be spent to buy one rank in any skill during character creation. I cannot increase any skill to a rank above 3 unless I'm creating a level, a character of level 3 or above. So this is a, a level 1 Jack McPumpkin. So I get 9 skill points plus my intelligence, which, oops, I tanked that a little bit. So I've got 13 skill points. And that's something to consider, too, because if you want it to be uh, pretty skillful, you may want to consider upping that intelligence a little bit because at the very beginning, you're going to end up with a few more ranks to be able to put into skills. But right now, I've got 13 to play with. So um, I'm going to do one in small guns. That brings me to 12. Let's see. Speech. I'm going to put two. That brings me to ten. I'm going to make him sneaky. That brings me to eight. Um, I'm going to give him a point melee. That's seven. Unarmed is six. Throwing is five. Athletics is four. Energy weapons is two, explosives one, and then maybe we give them an additional point in survival. That is my skill points. So now we've created a character whose whose main skills are in piloting, small guns, survival, and barter. He's good with energy weapons because he's lived in a city that's been near the Brotherhood of Steel. So maybe not his preferred weapon, but he has some experience with energy weapons because of them. Is good at sneaking around and speaking because this is a very social city and he's been called upon to keep the peace uh, a lot. So perhaps he's good at stopping conflicts before they become you know, bloody. Uh, good at sneaking around because the voodoos do some nefarious things on the side, but also a few skills in you know athletics because you've got to be in pretty decent shape to be a, a voodoo, 
some experience with uh, melee weapons and explosives just because of the work that the voodoos do, and as well as some throwing an unarmed. So uh, Jack McPumpkins is probably good in any type of combat situation, is pretty adaptable, but definitely prefers to have a small gun on them. And that's sort of what the, the skills tell me here. So what do you think so far, Dave? I think Jack McPumpkins looks like he he's, he's very formidable for for his job and for what he does i think that he matches he matches the mind's eye of jack mcpumpkins okay so step four is that we choose our first perk now perks if you're familiar with the fallout games they're pretty robust and there's a lot of them and the tabletop rpg is no exception now a lot of the perks are going to have some requirements that will modify whether or not they qualify for them. So I'm looking at the first page, for example. Um, the first page of perks is on page 59, if you're following along. Uh, I'm looking at adamantium skeleton. It requires an endurance of seven. I only have an endurance of five, or Jack McPumpkins only has an endurance of five. So I could not take adamantium skeleton right now because I would have to do something to pump that number up. So let's see what I am compatible with. I could get animal friend. So I could potentially um, make animals not attack me. I could get aqua boy or aqua girl. That's what uh, Lonnie Haybear took first level. Um, uh, let's see. Barbarian, Basher. Nope. <laughs> Going through here real quick. Uh, I could get um, Lady Killer. Uh, I could get Bloody Mess. So when I inflict a critical hit, um, if I roll an effect on a combat die, I inflict one additional injury to a random location. So if I'm rolling big damage, that might be good because I can do more criticals. Um, I can scavenge more food. I can collect more caps. Uh, let's see here. Center mass. When you make a ranged attack, you may choose to strike your target's torso without increasing the difficulty of the attack. In addition, you may re-roll re -roll D1D20 when making the test for your attack. You know what? I kind of like that. So I'm going to take center mass. And I'm going to read that um, a bit more thoroughly here for everyone. So, center mass. When you make a ranged attack, you may choose to strike your target's torso location or equivalent for creatures that use different location without increasing the difficulty of the attack. So, we talked about hit locations a little bit earlier. And the way this works is that if you want to do a called shot, if you want to hit something specific, it increases the difficulty by one. And what center mass does is it says... You can hit the torso for free. If you don't want it to be random, you can just hit the torso for free, and we can take a look at the ramifications for that. But in addition, you may re-roll 1d20 when making the test for your attack, which means that if I choose to hit the torso, which we talked about power armor is sort of some of the thickest armor and stuff, but this also lets me re-roll a d20 when making that test, which means I have potential to turn a failure into a success, I have the potential to turn a success into additional AP. So 
this sounds like something where Jack McPumpkins got a more, you know, traditional uh, training with training uh, targets. Just shoot center mass. Don't go for the headshot. Don't go for the limbs. Go for the biggest part to try to subdue someone, and then we'll fix them later. So I, I kind of like this this perk for him. So that this is a combat related perk. There are a lot of perks that are not combat related. They might uh, have to do with social situations or story situations. Anything. Or some are like with Kim's. Uh, one gives you dog meat, which is something that Jack McPumpkins could potentially get too. He could have his own dog, but, uh, we're going to stick with this. I think we'll stick with center mass. Now I have to scroll through all of these perks to get to step five, which is our derived stats. Now derived stats are based on what your special points are. So you don't put points in your derived stats. They, they're they already calculated for you. So the first is carry weight. So your carry weight is 150 pounds plus your strength times 10. So my strength is 5. 5 times 10 is 50. 150 plus 50 is a 200 pound carry weight. There are perks that affect how much you can carry. Base damage resistance. Um, all of your damage resistances start at zero. Uh, if you take certain perks and certain armor, that will adjust your damage resistance. So there's like one perk that makes you a little bit more impervious to um, poison, for example. So you can um, stave off the effects of poison if you so desire. Um, next is defense. So your defense statistic is the basic difficulty of any attacks made against you. It's based off of your agility attribute. So if my agility is 8 or less, my defense is 1. If my agility is 9 or higher, my defense is 2. Maybe I want to make an adjustment. Like maybe... Oh, it needs to be 9 or higher. It's at 7. So maybe I don't want to make an adjustment. That would be a pretty big investment there. If I had an agility of 8, I'd probably consider making an adjustment to get it to 9 to get that defense bump. So I'm not going to do that, but something to consider. Like some of these adjustments can be made while you're doing character creation, but I'm not going to do that. Initiative is my perception plus agility. So like Dave said earlier, this is a static number. You don't roll it. So perception of six and agility of seven, I've got an initiative of 13. So if you wanted someone that acted in combat first all the time, you could pump up the agility and perception, which are good for a lot of your combat abilities to begin with, and that would be a way to do it. Health points are your endurance plus luck. My endurance is five. My luck is six. Brings my max hit points to 11. And then melee damage. Um, depending on my strength, you can have a melee bonus to damage. Now, that starts at a strength of 7, and I have a 5, and I don't see Jack McPumpkins uh, wading into melee too much, so that's not really, I don't think so. not really important for me. All right. Step 6 is I choose my equipment. Now, my equipment is going to be based off of my origins. So this starts on page 76 of the core rulebook. And I'm going to scroll through until I get to
uh, Wastelander. Because characters who select either the ghoul or survivor origins may select one of the following equipment. Yeah. So you've got different mer- you've got different packs, mercenary, raider, or settler. He's probably a mercenary, so I'd pick the mercenary pack. That would give me tough clothing, leather armor, um, a melee weapon, a ranged weapon, ammunition, a note advertising a job in a nearby settlement, and some caps. So I'm not going to go through all that, but that allows me to pick there. Um, depending on my tag skills, I get additional items. So because I tagged barter, I get 2d20 additional caps. Because I tagged pilot, I get broken car parts equivalent to five common scrap. I tagged small guns. So I get six plus three combat dice of additional shots of an ammo I already possess. And because I tagged survival, I get two purified water and one iguana on a stick. And that right there... Is Jack McPumpkins. I haven't added all the weapons and equipment and all that stuff, but we have created Jack McPumpkins, beloved NPC from the Rad Rolls universe. And boy, is he beautiful. Beautiful Jack McPumpkins out there pumpkin around. <laughs> <laughs>